thought there might be some clarity. Well, I don't know if you're going to like this news. There's still no clarity. The balance of power in the House and the Senate remains undecided at this hour this morning. Some critical races to tell you about, though, still too close to call. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has officially announced his intention to run for Speaker of the House. But the expected thin margin Republicans may have is complicating that whole thing. Also, you won't want to miss this. Our very own Christian Amanpour sits down one-on-one with Ukraine's President Zelensky and the First Lady to discuss what U.S. support for Ukraine looks like after all of the midterm votes are counted. We would really like to have this bipartisan support remain after the elections because, yes, there have been these mixed messages that were in the U.S. mass media, particularly from the Republican side. But we start this morning with the waiting game. You have to be patient when it goes, maybe potentially into the weekend to figure out who controls Congress. Nobody is watching this more than members of Congress right now. We still have three key Senate races undecided as you are waking up this morning. Arizona, Nevada, Georgia. We know Georgia is headed to a December runoff, so you've got some time to watch that one. But control of the Senate may not be determined for a month, John Berman. I mean, we are going to be waiting. We'd wait till, de- till January the last time there was a runoff. Now at least it's December. Maybe. Or maybe not. If Democrats carry both of these remaining races, the runoff won't matter in terms of control. If Republicans carry both of these, it won't matter in terms of control. And I would dispute that no one's watching this more closely than members of Congress, because I barely slept last (laughs) night. And I know John King did either. Let me show you what happened. John Berman. Let me show you what happened in Nevada overnight, because things changed. If you deign to sleep last night, it looks different this morning. There were, there were more votes counted, largely in Clark County and Washoe County, which you can see here, tilt a little bit Democratic, which cut into Adam Laxalt's lead here. Let me show you over time what took place here. Uh, I'm going to rewind here. Go back to 7 p.m. last night. You can see Adam Laxalt's lead was 22,000 votes. At 9 p.m., Clark County here, the largest county in the state, Las Vegas, reported some new counting. It cut Laxalt's lead to about 17,000. But wait! At 12.05 a.m., which wasn't that long ago, Lyon County, which is right here, heavily Republican, reported new votes. Laxalt's lead grows. But at 12.30 a.m., Washoe County reports new votes. The lead goes all the way down to 15,000. And in Washoe County, he went from leading by four points to actually trailing. All within 25 minutes. All within 25 minutes. This is getting very, very much closer. And let me just tell you about Nevada right now. There are 110,000 votes left, okay? They are largely mail ballots from Clark County and Washoe County, which favors, it tends to favor the Democrats if Catherine Cortez Masto wins 60% of that, okay, if of the 110,000, she would net 22,000 votes net. That would be enough to put her into the lead. Now, we don't know it will go this way, and there may be some more mail votes coming in that could change this, but you can see which way this could go this week. And the trend seems to be that the rural votes were breaking in his favor, those mail-in ballots. And now, though, it seems to be the urban votes that seem, based on the numbers so far that we've been getting in, have been breaking in the favor of this very endangered incumbent Democrat. The urban mail vote, which is Clark County, Las Vegas, and Reno, has been going toward Catherine Cortez Masto. I can actually give you the percents. In Washoe County, she had 61 percent of the vote, which remember, I told you 60 percent was the target there. That's over that margin. So and in Clark County, 
Down here, it was even higher. Excuse me, Peter Brady. It was 65 (laughs) percent of the vote. So much higher than the 60 percent threshold C needs. So that's what's happening in these counties. I will tell you while we're talking about the Senate, because also it very much matters what happens in Arizona as well. It's a little bit of a different story in Arizona where there's more than 500,000 votes remaining from across the state. His lead did change uh, overnight, and I can take you back there, too. Uh, You can see that his lead was 83,000 at 7 p.m. At 9 p.m., it had grown to 95,000. Still 95,000 at uh, at 12.05 a.m. And that, well, that's other things here. This goes back to Arizona right there. But you can see that lead changing. But here's also the number that matters, 76,000. Yes, and there's there's 500,000. 76%, 76% reporting. There's some 500,000 votes remaining here. So there is room for Blake Masters to make up this margin. I, next hour, will give you a sense of the percentage he needs to hit in order to do that. Quickly before we go, though, can you explain, if you're waking up, you've been waking up every day to check these numbers, if someone's watching at home, what's the timing here? When will we know? How long is it going to take? Okay, so in Nevada, the any ballots received by mail, postmarked by Election Day, will be counted by Saturday. And so we should have a better sense by Saturday, and they will be counted day by day. Okay. So Saturday's a target for Nevada. Arizona, you know, get ready to wait at this point. We just don't know. It takes them a long time. They're going to count, you know, 60,000 votes here and 80,000 votes there. Two years ago in the presidential election, it took deep into the next week before that race was projected. I remember it well. Pack a lunch is what you're basically telling us. That's right. And breakfast and dinner times six. (laughs) Okay, good. All right, John Berman, thank you. John, it's like watching your favorite team when I watch you try to get into the end zone. You're like, oh, my gosh. The Red Sox? I mean, it's Patriots. It's It's been a struggle for them, but I won't comment on that. Thanks, guys. Who won the Alabama game? (laughs) Oh, Oh, wow, John. We'll just sulk over here in the corner. We're in LSU colors. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not. Okay, John. Good Good morning. Uh, So this morning, sources say that Republican leader Kevin McCarthy is looking to lock down the votes to be uh, uh, elected the next Speaker of the House as the party appears to be on track to take the majority. But a group of hard right members may try to complicate his bid. We want to go now to CNN's Melanie Zanona live on Capitol Hill for CNN This Morning. Good morning to you. So, look, we know, you know, anyone who has a chance, anytime we go through something like this, person tries to secure his or her way to becoming speaker. But there is one group of his own party who might throw a monkey wrench in it. Good morning, Melanie. Good morning, Don. I mean, yeah, right now it's all hands on deck for Kevin McCarthy. He has been scrambling to lock down this speakership, a speakership that once looked like a sure thing, now suddenly on the rocks after a disappointing night on Tuesday. But I'm told that McCarthy has been calling up members, asking for their support, arguing that he is about to deliver them the majority, also hearing out some of their demands and their concerns, although not making promises just yet. He also tapped a team of allies to help make some of these calls. And we did spot Marjorie Taylor Greene, a potential critic and member of the pro-Trump Freedom Caucus, going in and out of his office yesterday. She declined to say whether she's going to support him for speaker, but sources tell me that there are around two dozen members of the Freedom Caucus who are threatening to vote against McCarthy. The bottom line is they see that they have leverage with a smaller majority and they're planning to use it. Yeah, the question is, what do they want? Well, there's a bunch of things that they want. At the top of their list, 
They want to make it easier for a lawmaker to call a floor vote on ousting a sitting speaker. That is something McCarthy is very adamantly against. It was used over the head of former Speaker John Painter, who eventually resigned. But there are another, a number of other demands that they're looking for. They want more representation on the steering committee, which doles out other committee assignments. They want more time to review non-controversial bills before they come to the floor. And look, as Speaker McCarthy has a whole number of perks at his disposal, as one Republican told me, he has a lot of chips to cash in, but he might need to cash in every single one of them. So McCarthy and his allies are confident at this point that he will be able to get the votes, but it's going to be a messy process between now and January when that floor vote comes up for Speaker. And we'll be watching and covering all of it. Thank you, Melanie. All right, hundreds of Republicans running for office this year have echoed President Trump's lies that the 2020 election was rigged. Some of them have even taken action to try to overturn the results. Let's talk about all of this and how those candidates fared on Election Day. CNN senior political analyst John Avalon is here. John, good morning. Democracy won. But uh, I was talking about Tom Friedman's op-ed earlier today. If you ask him, we're not out of the woods yet. What do you think? We're definitely not out of the woods yet, but it's important to get a sense of the election denier scorecard to date because it tells us a lot about what happened this election uh, and, and what future brushback we might see. Take a look at the top of the ticket, right, in terms of governor. Now, there are seven who won, seven election deniers won, but these are predominantly incumbents in deep red states. Now, if you want to add Florida to that category, and this was sort of pro forma. The one new uh, new governor in this category is uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders from Arkansas. The key thing is the 12 folks who lost, because these were people who were running for the office now, largely on the back of being an election denier, including in some critical states like Pennsylvania, which typically act as swings in presidential elections, and where the governor appoints the secretary of state. So this kind of decisive loss for 12 election deniers for governor is really significant. It shows the gravity of the rejection of this wing of the party. That said, there are three governors out uh, to date, mm-hmm. Arizona and Nevada among them. That's one of the many reasons why it's so critical to get answers about what happens in those states. Because if election deniers are in that poll position for governor, that could have real implications next presidential. Especially if they're coupled in a state with an election denier who wins secretary of state. This is, I mean, when have we ever talked broadly on national television about secretary of state races before this cycle? And this is, th- this is so critical. It is. And, and, and look, I mean, hiring an election denier or electing an election denier to, uh, who doesn't believe in, in overseeing elections, I mean, it's like hiring an arsonist to be your fire commissioner. It makes no practical sense. Here's the tale of the tape to date. Six folks have lost, including people who are running in Michigan and Minnesota where they could have done real damage. Four election deniers have won, but again, in these sort of deep red states that are unlikely to go Democrat in a presidential election. And so you get that catch-22 with uh, election deniers. They'll approve the elections that they win. Uh, And then two not yet projected, particularly, again, Nevada, Arizona. One more reason why it's so critical to get answers in all the votes counted in these states. Huge implications. For sure. John Avalon, thank you, friend. See you soon. That's a very smart point. When have we... Talked about secretaries of state. Now, <laughs> I know, now, now. You're that's, so right. that's the environment we're in. So this is what Donald Trump is waking up to today. It is the second straight day that Rupert Murdoch's New York Post has taken aim at him. Trump says that he is not to blame for the midterm performance, but some high-profile Republicans, they simply don't see it that way. Almost every one of these Trump endorsed candidates that you see in competitive states has, have lost. And it's a, it's a, it's a huge loss for, for Trump. I think it sends a message to the country, along with some other states, that this is truly a pivot point for the Republican Party. Uh, this is a time that Donald Trump is no doubt in the rearview mirror. 
And it's time to move on with the party. It's time to move on with candidate quality. It's an opportunity to reassess what Trump's role is inside the Republican Party. And are people willing to stand up rather than caving in on him? The question is, does the rest of the Republicans have the courage to stand up to Trump or do they once again acquiesce to him? Because we all know him. He's not going to take the blame for this, uh, at least in his own mind. This is certainly a rejection of the MAGA base. The governor DeSantis did it incredibly well in Florida. He just knocked the, the cover off the ball there. Um, and I think people are now saying, OK, we're moving forward. And if you just look at the, the Trump versus DeSantis stuff today, uh, it's a heck of a lot different than it was just three months ago and definitely a year ago. You know, I think Governor DeSantis is the biggest single winner of the night, and he will almost certainly become uh, the rallying point for everybody in the Republican Party uh, who wants to uh, move beyond President Trump. Let's discuss now. Senior political analyst and senior political correspondent at the New York Times, Maggie Haberman, is here. She's also the author of the book Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. Good morning. I don't even have to say anything to you. Just go. Did you see what happened? I, I, I did. Um, <laughs> what I'm most struck by in that montage that we just saw is Newt Gingrich and the lieutenant governor of Georgia, because yeah. Newt Gingrich is somebody who has been incredibly close to Donald Trump, has been talking up his strength forever. A uh, lieutenant governor of Georgia is not a voice that we hear from repeatedly. The others are generally people who have been pretty critical of Trump. We are at a real inflection point. Clearly, the elites in the party are done with Trump. We only have to look at this to know just where the elites in the GOP are. That doesn't necessarily mean it translates to the base. And so I think we are going to see. I think Trump is at his most vulnerable than he has been since January 6th. But whether somebody moves forward against him, we'll see. What? what? When will we know and how, right? I'm not saying what month, but what indicates to you that we will know if this time is different? Well, among other things, these races that are not settled yet have to get settled. So if Carrie Lake wins for governor in Arizona, uh, if Laxalt wins in Nevada, if Blake Masters somehow pulls it out, although at the moment that looks harder to see, uh, what, whatever happens in the Senate race in Alaska, because that was a key target of his because of impeachment, that will be telling. If the, if his candidates pull it out, then it's going to be that he had a rough night in Pennsylvania and a few other specific spots. If not, then you are looking. And look, a lot of these candidates had tougher races than they should have, given everything. We will know in the next few months if, among other things, DOJ moves forward against him. Does Ron DeSantis start making more moves than he's been doing? And DeSantis is really the one to watch, as we just heard. Um, Trump is never going to acknowledge that something is wrong. And folks around him spent all day yesterday insisting nothing bad really happened. Something bad happened. We're just not sure what it, it means. What was he saying yesterday behind the scenes? Because I know he's tweeting or he's posting yeah. on his website about he personally believes he was successful, but Republicans themselves were not on Tuesday night. Right. It was it was for some people it was disappointing, but I did well was essentially his tweet. And, th and that's also not true, by the way, like he did well in some places. Um, privately, according to multiple people I talked to, he was very angry. Uh, the focal point of his anger was the Oz race in particular, because that was not a natural fit for him. And he was convinced to do it. And of course, he never takes responsibility for any of his own decisions. It's always that somebody, some, some staffer tricked him. And I think, Caitlin, to your question, this is something that I heard a lot of complaining about from people around him yesterday. You know, his, 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 his aides who are in his world, paid aides, are all insisting nothing's wrong, status quo, everything goes forward. Um, other people are saying, how many years are we going to spend blaming it on staff? And so, and I think you were going to hear more of that as we go forward. One big question is, does it delay his announcement? I know there have yeah, been some say, people, yeah. even on the record, Kaylee McEnany, Jason Miller yeah. saying he should wait 
not not do it, but wait until after December 6th, which is when that Georgia runoff is. They, they all, in his world, think that he should do that. Now, how forcefully they make that case to him versus say it to each other is always the open question. Um, but that is that is the key date to watch for next week. He, I think, does not want to. A bunch of people close to him also are worried it will show some sign of weakness. But I, it's, he's going to get blamed if he continues to go ahead and Walker loses. What do you make of Mike Pence out with this op-ed today? His book comes out Tuesday, same day Trump's going to make this big announcement from Mar-a-Lago. Um, what do you make of him? He's, I mean, as Don's been pointing out, he's selling a book. He could have said all this stuff to the public, put it on the record in the days following January 6th, and he didn't. Or to the House Select Committee. Yeah, there you go. I think that this, this is, there, there's an alternate universe where this is his House Select Committee <laughs> testimony. Um, but that said, I think it's an important part of the historical record. I think that he and his folks have voiced issues with the Select Committee that, um, that they, they consider to be about process and how things were conducted. It's pretty striking, Poppy, hearing Pence talking about this in his own words. I mean, he is talking about, he confirms much of the reporting that's been out there already. So, yes, there are people who are going to read this and say, well, we knew this, except we didn't know it in first person from Mike Pence. He explains why he didn't want to leave the building, and it's not because he thought that he was going to be essentially kidnapped by the Secret Service as part of a plot. It's that he didn't want the image of his caravan fleeing, mm-hmm. um, the, or you know, his motorcade fleeing the Capitol. He confirms conversations that he had with Trump. He describes this lengthy pressure campaign. And then a really interesting moment after January 6th and his first conversation with, with Trump, I think it's five days later, orchestrated by, uh, by Trump's uh, son-in-law and daughter, Trump has a moment where he says, what if what basically, what if that rally didn't happen? It's too terrible to end this way. That's the only time I have heard of any real reflection from Trump, and it was fascinating. It's interesting that you read it that way with the whole motorcade leaving the Capitol, mm-hmm. because I, you know, for me, I thought, well, was this about optics for Mike Pence? Because he could have left the Capitol and still, with his dignity, and still did what he had to do, what his, uh, his constitutional, his oath to the Constitution. Um, but he could have also stood up faster and stronger to the former president, and it may not have gotten that far. He said, you know, I had compassion for the people. When I, when I drove up and I saw, you know, the people at the rally as I was on my way to the Capitol, mm-hmm. I had compassion for them. Perhaps if he had been more honest with the former president and with those people, then it would not have gotten to that moment. I don't, so I read him staying there as, you know, not the way that you had. I feel that this is reputation rehab for Mike Pence, mm-hmm. uh, this book. And I don't ascribe to the belief that Mike Pence is a hero because he did his job. We have to have higher standards than that, especially for elected officials, especially if you are the person who is second in power. You have to be able to stand up to the boss when you know that you're on the right side of history. The law is with you. And it's your oath. So, Don, I think there are a lot of people who, who feel the way you do. Um, and we've heard that criticism, not just about Pence, but a number of former Trump aides. The way that I have come to look at it, um, looking at everything that happened, and just given the intensity of everything that was happening during that three-month period of time, people in the administration, those of us covering it, it's sort of shocking to look back and look at how much was taking place. I am not sure. I, I think Pence is in a different position, so I agree with you that I think that if he had said something publicly, it might have been different. Um, I actually am no longer convinced that much of what any one person could have done. Bill Barr did come out 
in December and say there was no widespread voter fraud. And Trump just rolled right over that and looked to find other people who were going to do the job. In Pence's case, if Pence said, I'm not going to do this, then they would have just proceeded without him. I wonder a lot about what would have happened at the end of the final two weeks had the riot not happened. Would Trump have walked out of that door willingly? Mm. Would Trump, so I, I, there's so many unknowns. I, I hear what you're saying, and I think that there are people, as I said, who do feel that way. I, I just don't know that I think that one person saying I, I agree is with going you. to matter. Just if you look at, uh, and again, he says in his book and in this, you know, the, the clip that the, this mm-hmm. op-ed or whatever is basically. It's an excerpt. It's an excerpt yeah, from, from his right. book. Um, but when you, when you look at what he says, when he says, you know, I wanted to give people the opportunity to discuss legal challenges, there were no legit or legitimate challenges to the vote. There were no legitimate challenges. And what, end, and what ended, and right. He should have, that, so that's where people believe he should have just cut it off there instead of giving oxygen to the election deniers in office. That's all I'm saying. I, and, I, and I think it's a very valid argument. Um, but I, I also understand, you know, where he is coming from in terms of Get it. how you can make the broader argument that this is what happens when you agree to sign up for working for Trump, right? And I think that that's sort of part of the problem. But I also... Personally, as a, as a journalist, I am interested in what the former vice president has to say. Yeah, very fair. Thank you, Maggie. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Maggie. With control of Congress still up for grabs, what President Biden is now saying about the possibility of working with the Republican Party. Hurricane Nicole making landfall in Florida overnight. It is now weak into a tropical storm, though. Well, we are live along Florida's east coast. we got to look at the conditions for you this morning and what you need to watch. Well, each one is a dry run for the next one because you never know what's going to happen and you never know how severe it's actually going to be. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. water in your house, what, a month and a half after Hurricane Ian. So tonight, think about those folks. If they're back in their home, they got to be looking at this. Yeah, indeed. Think about all of them. Strong winds and surging waves uh, along Florida's east coast as Hurricane Nicole made landfall last night. The system has now weakened a bit to a tropical storm. Let's go to CNN's Layla Santiago. She joins us from Satellite Beach, Florida, for CNN this morning. Uh, Good morning, Layla. So weakened, but still, what was it like for folks overnight? Uh, wind, wind, and more ferocious wind overnight, and we're still continuing to feel that right now here on Satellite Beach, just about 50 miles north of where this made landfall down in Vero Beach. So let's walk around, Poppy. Let me show you uh, what we're dealing with here. I mean, just take a look at the wind up at the trees. That sort of makes the point as to how strong these wind gusts are that are coming down. In fact, this road uh, right behind here uh, is closed off because police tell me they have hot wires down there given power lines that are down. Now let's go to the other side uh, where I can show you also just on the ground uh, some of the sea foam that was coming in earlier uh, when we were here. And then, of course, there's that. There is the Atlantic Ocean that has just been aggressive all night long. Those waves just pounding uh, this area. And, and, you know, so today will be much about damage assessment, much about figuring out exactly uh, what went wrong overnight and how this area moves forward. Because, Poppy, you know this, I, I constantly talk about timing when we're out here at these storms. 
six weeks ago, Hurricane Ian really pounded this area as well. So folks who are waking up as the sun comes up right now, they could very well be waking up to a very different coastline that was already vulnerable because of Ian and now enter Nicole. Yeah, no question. That's what that reporter was saying, too, at the top. You know, it's been a month and a half. You, Layla, have been talking to emergency management officials overnight. I I mean, the wind is just so obvious there. What are they most worried about now going forward until this fully passes? So interestingly enough, as I've checked in overnight and just in the last half hour, there are three things coming up. One is high tide. That is coming up in just a matter of hours. So they're worried about that, um, given the, the water that they're expecting, the flooding that could come up. And then the one that has come up over and over and over again is beach erosion. What we were just talking about, you're going to probably wake up to a very different coastline here. I mean, just north of us in Volusia County, uh, they had structures that were teetering right there on the edge because of coastal erosion. They've deemed dozens of buildings unsafe, directly correlating it to coastal erosion, Bobby. Layla, we appreciate you, your whole team, the camera, folks we can't see uh, for being there through all this. Thank you. Up next, our coverage of the midterm elections is going to continue. We'll talk to you about how President Biden is reacting to the wins, the unexpected wins that Democrats had. We'll also tell you where the closest races stand at this hour. And we have to talk about this. Uh, Facebook's parent company, Meta, is now the latest tech giant to slash its workforce. Coming right after Twitter, right? What is driving this trend? What's going on here? While we don't know all the results yet, at least I don't know them all yet, uh, here's what we do know. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. A little victory lap, maybe a little bit of gloating there. The president taking a small victory lap, the red wave that most expected turning out trickle, maybe. So Congress still hanging in the balance at this hour looking increasingly likely for Republicans that they're going to gain the House of Representatives, though. And that means that partisan gridlock could get a little worse. So this is what the president had to say about uh, working with Republicans. Here it is. Under no circumstances will I support the proposal put forward by Senators Johnson and the senator from down in Florida to cut or make fundamental changes in Social Security and Medicare. That's not on the table. I will not do that. I will veto any attempt to pass a national ban on abortion, but I'm ready to compromise with Republicans where it makes sense on many other issues. We'll see if there's anywhere for them to compromise. Let's talk about this with CNN contributor Dr. Abdul El-Sayed and Scott Jennings, CNN political commentator and former special assistant to President W. Bush. Thank you both for being here. You guys know I have nothing to say about this, so I'm just going to sit here. (laughs) Yeah, Don, (laughs) we know better. Scott, though, you had a tweet that went viral, shall we say, where you were talking about what we've heard from so many Republicans, what I've heard from so many Republicans over the years, but now people are really saying publicly, which is this unusual blowback to Trump following Tuesday night and what happened there. The question, though, is whether or not this criticism is going to last. Yeah, good, good question. I think it's his weakest moment politically since January 6th. And on January 6th, um, there were some of us who thought at the time, 
If you were going to move on someone, now would be the time. I mean, there was all the reasons to do it, and the Republican Party hesitated, and he sort of filled the void. And I think the reason is because there was no obvious alternative. Like, who, who's actually going to lead the party? There was no, you know, pending election. Now, there is a pending election. The 24 election is here. But more importantly, there's someone to fill the void. The only great thing that happened to the Republican Party Tuesday night was Florida. Ron DeSantis had a crushing victory, sent a huge message about what a governing coalition could look like. He turned a purple state red. And so I think for the first time, Republicans are actually seeing the next lily pad on which to hop. And they've never been able to see that before. Mm. Time will tell. And, uh, and, and we'll see if DeSantis gets in and, and makes a go of it. But his instincts are really good. And he may be the next evolution of what Republicans are looking for, which is some of the fight you get with Trump, but also none of the baggage and the drama. Can I just ask you one more question? Because I know, obviously, you're close to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell right now. He wanted to become Senate Majority Leader. Yesterday, when he was asked what he thought about Tuesday's results, he said, I don't deal in feelings. Yeah, that's accurate. He, uh, <laughs> he does not. I mean, he, he deals in reality and dealing and uh, just playing the hand he's dealt. Uh, but I will tell you, um, if you look at all of the polling and the CNN exit polling and just the, you know, the mood of the country, the way people feel about the economy, people don't love Joe Biden either. If we don't find a Senate majority here, it's a travesty. It is an absolute travesty. All the indicators were there. The whole thing was there to be won. And we didn't win it. And I know but McConnell talk- said candidate quality. Absolutely. Mitch tried to tell him. And if you look in some of these races, um, it was, it was laying there to, to be won, and it wasn't. And so, you know, we'll see if the party learns some lessons here. Uh, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. There's also a doctor in the room. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they say uh, admission is the first step toward recovery, and this, this definitely was an addiction. You, so, I, I, Let me ask you, because I, I was out and about last night, and people were saying, I'm so glad Trump is over, Trump is over. And I'm like, mm, I'm not so sure about that. And uh, Listen, we're here in... Well, it was a blue bubble in New York. I'm not so sure anymore, considering what's going on with, you know, the changing demographics here. So what do you think? Is this the beginning of Is it a blow? What is this? So, you know, if, 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 it, if admission is the first step, there are 11 more steps. And the worry I have is I don't see the choreography that ends up with Donald Trump not being the Republican nominee as it has to go through an entire primary process. I mean, this man has called into question an entire general election. What's going to keep him from calling into question the outcomes of a primary that's in a party that's in his thrall. And so I don't know that I see that. I also think that for the country, Donald Trump will continue to be a hanging question over the head of the Republican Party and therefore our politics until he is soundly, clearly 100% beaten you know, by 10, 20 points. And I think if he does run and he is the nominee, that's likely what's going to happen. He is not a popular politician. You could see people running away from the stench of Trump in almost every single election that he put his finger in. Um, but the thing is, I, the, the one person who cannot see that, who needs to see that, is Donald Trump himself. You ran, and a lot of other you people, ran too, you. for, you were once a candidate for governor of Michigan. Do you know what it's like to run for governor? What, what Ron DeSantis did in Florida was remarkable. Not only the spread, but who he got. Right. The Latino, the Latinos on board, uh, Miami-Dade. Do you think that it, he can repeat that across the country? Because that's the question. Was it just Florida or is it bigger? Are we getting ahead of ourselves on this whole discussion? <laughs> I just feel like it's... But that's not what I'm asking. Too- what I'm asking is, does he have the power to repeat that? What I think the, the, the DeSantis... Uh, playbook looks like is competent local 
technical leadership, mm-hmm. which can't take that away from him. He is competently led in terms of the fundamental basics of governing. And then a, a, a very good instinct for figuring out how to weaponize a culture war in a way that redounds to particular communities that he's trying to pick up. And so the way that he's played um, a sort of fear of change when it comes to schools, for example, I think has been important in his ability to make an argument uh, to a Latino community, for example, in Miami-Dade. The bigger question I think that means for Democrats is we've got to start asking big picture questions about why are we losing communities like this when we have been long advocates for the issues that should unite many different kinds of people Mm -hmm. uh, around the bread and butter issues that we've always talked about. And I think that's as much a question for whether or not DeSantis can scale that brand to politics uh, and and whether or not Democrats can address it. The last thing I want to say about this is that I worry a lot about where our country goes under DeSantis. I think a lot of folks think that the exit of Donald Trump means that all of a sudden the spell is broken. Mm -hmm. I actually see Ron DeSantis as a far more efficient version of what Donald Trump has done. And I worry a lot about the ways that it tells us that we ought to be tearing each other apart, that we cannot accept one another for who we are. Why does that make you laugh? this This is so expected, like, you know, Here's the Republican Party saying, well, maybe it's time to move on from Trump. And, and my friend has come along to tell us, well, you know, DeSantis is much worse than Trump. And, and what Both I, can be what, true, though, what Scott. I, what, I predict, what I predict is going to happen is, and hey, the Democrats' tactics in this election, it paid off. They helped a bunch of uh, really bad Republican candidates get <laughs> nominations, and they defeated them. <clears throat> they, will, they will judge Trump as being the easiest person to defeat. So I expect... A lot of punditry around. You know, everybody else is much worse than Trump. Maybe you should just nominate him one more time. We should not nominate him again. We so, do need a new nominee. We have to move on from this. If, if, if I may, I, I don't think that DeSantis is worse than Trump. I think he's more efficient at Trumpism than Trump is. Uh, I think Trump is caught into his own narcissism but in you, a way. you think that's better than But the point that I'm trying to make is this. If we continue as a country to peddle in the politics of division, there is going to be a cost in the country that is bigger than who is an elected official in the country. And what I don't see, right, what I, what I don't see is <clears throat> a conversation about whether or not this kind of politics that tells people that some people are less human than others, that don't deserve the same freedoms as others, whether or not that politics itself should continue to be a valid form of politicking on the Republican right. And I, this is the conversation I really wish y'all would have, whether it's Trump or DeSantis or anyone else. That's the conversation. I- this is a, this I, is a really good I love this conversation because you disagree <clears throat> civilly. And by the way, you gave some props to a Republican governor. So, you know, there, <laughs> therefore we can, from other parties, see good things and bad things in others. Well, I, I have to congratulate, I mean, the Michigan Democrats, yeah. where you come from, had a really good night. I mean, for, for Republicans, Florida expecting. was a big, Michigan was a real bright spot. I mean, in a, in a, in a pretty good I'm night. I'm going to help too, the control you know, room and get to control. But I, 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 I find it, it interesting. Or I'm not, you, I'm not. I find it interesting that you, you talk, when you talked about the messaging, because the whole time before you were saying Democrats have the wrong message. And now you're saying Democrats have the right message. When, uh, well, I, look, I looked at the exit polls. Biden was unpopular. Most people thought his policies were hurting, not helping. Yet the independents broke stuck. for Dems. Yeah. They broke. So independents misbehaved. They did not behave the way you would expect. And the way I interpreted that was, I don't love Biden, but I like him a little bit more than the people who were affiliated with Trump. Hence, right. time to move on. Poppy's going to beat me up. I'm going to shut up. <laughs> Just trying to help the team. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Thank doctor. You, Thank you, Scott. Uh, next. Because we want you to see this, too. Our own Christian Amanpour sat down with the president and the first lady of Ukraine. What President Zelensky is saying about Russian-occupied 
Kherson and the battle to retake it. She'll join us live with that interview. In an exclusive CNN interview, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and the First Lady sat down with our very own Christiane Amanpour. She joins us now live from Kyiv. Good morning to you here and hello to you there, Christiane. What do they have to say? Well, it's really interesting. Sat down with them as the midterm results were coming in. Of course, it really they're dependent on U.S. help. They both said, especially the president, that he really hopes that this valuable U.S. help continues. He believes it will. They've talked to many U.S. senators, bipartisan groups, um, the National Security Advisor, etc., and they are assured that this vital U.S. help and NATO help will continue. I'm here in Kyiv for the last several days. The Russian cruise missile and kamikaze drone attack on the cities, on energy infrastructure, has abated, and therefore they're really trying to fix this energy infrastructure before the devastating cold and dark of the winter. And I did start by asking them how they're coping nine months in. And they both looked extremely tired, but they were happy to talk certainly to the American and global audience. You asked whether I thought this war would last so long. No, because I didn't start this war. And I'm sure there isn't a single Ukrainian who knew what this will be and what tragedy this would bring to every home in our country. Because, I'll repeat, we did not start this war. But Ukrainian society united and showed that it was ready for what unfortunately was such a tragedy, showed that it was ready for these challenges. I was really impressed by the power of one nation and was impressed by the swiftness of the response of Europe, the whole world and the whole international community that rallied around Ukraine for this challenge. First Lady... What motivates you to get up in the morning? How do you feel that you've endured this war? Well, thank you. It's a big question. It covers many spheres of my life. And what helps me get up in the morning, um, surely, as you said, it's my husband's example. I know that if he endures, then I have to endure. If the day is begun, then we have to keep fighting. That keeps me going. Mr. President, what is the status of Kherson and the impending battle to retake Kherson? You know, that's a very serious question. And I'll be frank with you. I'll try to answer it in a way that doesn't give you an answer, to be honest. Because these planned military actions, they are discussed in a small circle, but then they're executed in silence. And I really want to have an unpleasant surprise for the enemy and not something they're prepared for. So I'd like to apologize. But at any rate, our people and our public needs to know that we're working on some very serious steps with a positive outcome for the citizens of Ukraine and all those communities that support peace in Ukraine. Is it true that you said to President Biden when they offered to evacuate you at the beginning that you said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition? Yes, that's right. Nothing changed. You know, my answer is still the same. What strength do you get from each other? If I can. Yes. That, that is my love and that is my best friend. 
So that is my energy. I wanted to answer your question at the very beginning, when Olena told you like she prepared breakfast for, for the children in the morning and prepared clothes and etc. Uh, and and what, what I wanted to tell you that, uh, but I have no such possibility. So nobody gives me breakfast <laughs> in the morning. I'm, I mean that it's such, such, uh, such difficult period. So they live apart because of security. And so just a little bit of humor and humanity from this first couple thrust into the midst of a war that clearly they didn't anticipate. Don? Fantastic interview, Christian. Good to see you. And thank you so much for that. Make sure you go to CNN.com to see more of Christian's interview. Poppy? Great. Alex is right. Okay. President Biden says Elon Musk's relationship with other countries is, quote, worthy of being looked at. Caitlin and I were just talking about that. What exactly is raising this concern? And will he say more? What will happen, especially as he goes to the G20? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I think that Elon Musk's cooperation and or technical relationships with other countries uh, is worthy of being looked at. That is a significant statement from the president as Elon Musk's Twitter takeover uh, has really the world's attention. <clears throat> what do we know about the foreign entities also that invested in Musk's new venture, Saudi Arabia, one of them? Let's talk about it with CNN media analyst Sarah Fisher. So there's the investors uh, part of it right, whose money is in this. And there's all of these uh, positions he's taken and comments he's made on big global issues like China, Taiwan, like Iran, like Russia, Ukraine. I'm less concerned about the investments, Poppy, than I am about the positions. Okay, why? And the reason being the White House already said it wasn't going to do a national security review on this particular deal. If they thought that there was too much foreign investment, they would have had the Committee of Foreign Investment of the U.S. look into it. They are not. Also, Twitter has always had foreign investors. Saudi Arabia, you mentioned at the top, has been an investor in Twitter since 2011, and it hasn't been a foreign national security issue thus far. But Elon's positions, I think, are a little bit more problematic. He's a huge global leader who's developed a populist following of over 114 million on Twitter. And what he says has major sway in terms of international affairs. Yeah, and he's also involved, you know, when it comes to Ukraine and the Starlink satellites there. There's been questions about Iran, what that looks like. He's also dabbling in all of these major geopolitical issues. Another question we have for you, though, this morning is about the layoffs that we're seeing. We obviously saw the ones with Twitter. Those are the questions about what that management was looking like. We're also now seeing them with Meta, the parent company of Facebook as well. Huge layoffs at Meta. I mean, 11,000 people, 13% of that company. And why it's a big deal is because it's not just Meta in a vacuum. It's Meta, it's Twitter, it's Snapchat, it's Stripe. It's so many big tech companies that this is actually reminiscent to me of the dot-com bubble 20 years ago. Oh, yeah. What this represents for the economy could have major implications for how we think about potentially moving into a recession. Meta for so long represented the most optimistic view of capitalism in the U.S. And to see a company that hasn't stopped growing for the past decade fall like this, it should send shivers not just down the spines of people in Silicon Valley, but really across the business in the United States. Do, do you foresee regulations 
coming? Of course. I mean, we know that regulators are particularly looking at Meta and Google in terms of antitrust. But the challenge is always that in order to get things done, Congress really needs to come together. Mm -hmm. And we have not seen Congress been able to move on things, even when there's bipartisan support, mm -hmm. things like a national privacy law. Yeah. yeah. We have Senator Klobuchar later. This has been like her thing for a long oh, yes. time. So we'll see. Sarah Fisher, thank you very thank much. Thank you. We'll definitely we be asking it. her about that. All right. 64 votes. That is all that separates one house race what? in Colorado. It is going to be a figure that you Oof. know very well, Lauren Boebert. We're breaking down all the races, including hers, that are right now this morning, as of 6.57 a.m., still too close to call. <laughs> on the, 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 the nose. the record. With 22 seconds, 6.57, 23. Good morning, everyone. Not to worry. Poppy's here. <laughs> we didn't get rid of her yet. <laughs> she's just not sitting here. She's going to be along in just a second. It is Thursday. It is There she is. It is Thursday. It's November 10th. Welcome, everyone, to CNN This Morning. And we've got a lot to get to this morning. Two days out from the election and control of Congress. Still up in the air. With races in three states too close to call right now, Republicans are two seats short of taking back the Senate. A runoff election in Georgia next month could ultimately decide the control of the chamber. And in the House, Republicans have secured 209 seats, nine short of that magic number, 218, that's needed for control. That means that the red wave most Republicans had been banking on turned out to really be more of a ripple. It was a very rough night for election deniers as well, something that left President Biden re-energized as he came out in front of the press yesterday. It was a good day, I think, for democracy. And I think it was a good day for America. Here's what we do know. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. All right, but we are still waiting to see what happens in some of these really close races. We've got Poppy at the magic wall this morning to tell us what is happening. Don't worry, I'm not touching the magic wall. I don't know <laughs> how to use the magic wall, but we have Magic Berman, who is. You've been so great at helping us understand it. Let's start in the Senate. What are we looking at? I do require being called Magic Berman from now on, by I know, the way. That's your nickname. All right, here's the situation. There are three Senate races that are still uncalled at this point. We know George is going to a runoff, so the two that we're focused on are Nevada and Arizona. And things changed a little bit overnight in these two contests. First in Nevada, you can see Adam Laxdahl, who's trying to unseat the Democratic incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto. His lead is smaller this morning than it was when you went to bed last night. Why? They counted some more mail vote in Clark County right here and in Washoe County right here. And that closed that lead down to 15,000. There's about 110,000 mail votes left to count. In possible Clark? in in the, the state, state overall. Okay. And if the margins for those are what we saw last night, Catherine Cortez Masto could could potentially take the lead. Arizona now. I want to spend some time here. This changed uh, overnight. Mark Kelly, the incumbent, leads by ninety five thousand, which is a greater lead than it was last night. If you went to sleep yesterday, this is what you saw. You saw Mark Kelly ahead by 89,000, but then there were votes released overnight from Maricopa County and Pima County down here. His lead grew to 95,000. Now, I'm gonna tell you this, you're gonna have to take my word for it. There's about 560,000 at least, 560,000 votes at least left to count, largely from Maricopa County here and Pima County down here. Now, what these votes look like, we're not sure. Two years ago, that vote, that batch, 
was a little more Republican. So Blake Masters has a chance here to close this gap and maybe overtake it. I did some math. If he manages to win 60% of the remaining vote, yeah. if, it's a tall order, yeah. but not impossible, that would net him a total of 112,000 votes. Okay. Okay, which is more than 95,000. So his target's actually right around 58%. It's a high bar, not impossible. So this race, not over. And just to remind people, if Democrats take both these seats, then the runoff in Georgia won't matter in terms of determining control. Yeah. Likewise for Republicans. If one party can win either of these seats, then Georgia doesn't matter for control. I think also a question about Masters is does he get the traditional, all the traditional Republican votes a different Republican candidate would get? That's a big question, but let's move on to the House. And 64 votes as a difference here in one of the races. All right. That race you are talking about is Colorado's third congressional district where Lauren Boebert, the controversial election-denying conservative, she's trailing by 64 votes. This race is tied. You know, we don't know everything we'd like to know about where the votes remain at this point. We do know one place, which is Pueblo County. Our friend uh, Brianna Keeler was on the phone with them overnight and was told there's at least 2,000 votes remaining to be counted from Pueblo County. And you will see that Adam Frisch, the Democrat, leads here. So this is skewing a little bit Democratic. In the last presidential election, this was a D plus about two district. So maybe he can expand that narrow lead. But wasn't this not even supposed to be close like this for him? It wasn't even on our list yeah. of competitive races. This right. is one of those races outside the scope here. Yeah. But she's very controversial. He ran a very tight race, tough race. He's a conservative Democrat, and he's done well in this district. We just need to get a better sense of yeah. where the votes are left in this country. I can show you one thing. So 95% reporting overall. If I take this down to, um, that shows 90%. The only counties that don't have 90% reporting, we think, are Pueblo, which I just showed you, huh. in this county right here, Otero County, which is a Republican county, but you can see there aren't many votes there. We just yeah. don't know. Yeah. It's a special skill that I don't have. So we're glad we have you, Magic Berman. Thank you very <laughs> Do much. Do you like Magic. it? But you're, can I apologize to Caitlin also, by the way? I said bad things about Alabama, the football team. That See? wasn't my intention. You were way too rough on her. We could talk she about the Vikings 7-1 if you want to. Oh, she triggered me by the Patriots comments, but I like Alabama. Join the club. I've been cranky. We've worked for seven straight hours. We're cranky and, you know. Yeah, but Berman knows. Like, it's personal when Berman talks about Alabama football because he knows how deeply emotionally invested in it I am. So I take it more personally. <laughs> Don't Berman. do it again to my girl. I didn't even we're mean coming it. That's after the thing. You. It's just a trigger response when you say anything about the Patriots. I it's just fine. came back with it. I didn't mean I'm, it. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm burning my sweater. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you, Magic Berman. Thank you uh, very much. Next hour, we're going to talk to the head of the Arizona County about uh, when we can expect the next results from that county, from Maricopa County, which is what we were chatting about. Don. I hate it when mommy and daddy fight, but we'll move on. <laughs> President Joe Biden cautiously optimistic at a post-midterm news conference, even though the balance of power in the House and Senate still undecided at this point. MJ Lee joins us this morning from the White House. Good morning to you. What is the president saying and the folks around him? 
Well, Don, as you know, a number of President Biden's predecessors after their very first midterms have had to the next day show real humility, humility and promise a dramatic course correction for the country. Uh, this is clearly not the position that the president found himself in yesterday as he offered a roadmap for the next two years and also fielded some questions about his own political future. My intention is that I run again. But I'm a great respecter of fate, and uh, this is ultimately a family decision. President Biden looking ahead to a possible re-election bid in 2024 after better-than-expected results for Democrats in Tuesday's midterm elections. It was a good day, I think, for democracy. Biden taking a victory lap during a rare press conference on Wednesday. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. Democrats had a strong night, and we lost fewer seats in the House of Representatives than any Democratic president's first midterm election in the last 40 years. The president touting his administration's accomplishments during its first two years, but also conceding that many Americans are still worried about the economy. The voters were also clear that they are still frustrated. I get it. I understand it's been a really tough few years in this country for so many people. Biden vowing he will not change course on his agenda and also saying if Republicans do take control of Congress, he plans to hold firm on a number of issues. Under no circumstances will I support the proposals put forward by Senators Johnson and the senator from down in Florida to cut or make fundamental changes in Social Security and Medicare. That's not on the table. I will not do that. I will veto any attempt to pass a national ban on abortion. With the balance of power still uncertain in both the House and the Senate, Biden speaking by phone Wednesday evening with House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who is hoping to be the next speaker. The White House saying it is prepared for possible investigations into Biden's administration and his family, and even ready for impeachment efforts. I think the American people will look at all of that for what it is. It's just I'm almost comedy. I mean, it's uh, but, you know, look, I can't control what they're going to do. I think one reason why Republicans faded at the end of this campaign is they stopped talking about what they could do for families and start talking about what they were going to do to the president's family. Now, after this huge week for President Biden on the domestic front, tonight he travels abroad in part to attend the G20 summit in Indonesia. And he said yesterday that foreign leaders are often asking him, Joe, when are things going to get back to normal in the United States? He said that's part of the reason that if Donald Trump does decide to run again, he wants to make sure that he isn't reelected president one more time. Don. Jay Lee, thank you very much. Appreciate that. As Trump is facing unusual blame from many in his party after the midterms, his former vice president, Mike Pence, is using it as a I told you so moment. The Wall Street Journal has just published an excerpt from Pence's forthcoming book detailing his final days with Trump and what happened behind the scenes on January 6th. Five days after the attack, when Trump had essentially called Pence a coward, though it was more explicit than that, Pence says that Trump asked him how he was doing. Pence reminded him he was with his family when he was inside the Capitol as it was being attacked. Trump acted as if he had just learned about that, asking Pence if he had been, quote, scared. Pence responded, no, not scared, angry.
Of course, remember, Trump never called Pence that day to check on him. An aide later testified Trump had actually approved of those hang Mike Pence chants. Pence writes in his new book, quote, President Trump retweeted an obscure article titled Operation Pence Card. It alluded to the theory that if all else failed, I could alter the outcome of the election on January 6th. I showed it to my wife, Karen, and rolled my eyes. Keep in mind, on New Year's Day, Trump called Pence about a lawsuit that had been filed by Texas Congressman Louis Gohmert aimed at forcing Pence to help overturn the election. Pence says that Trump told him, quote, I don't want to see Pence opposes Gohmert's suit as a headline this morning. But Pence says he told Trump he did oppose it. Trump responded, quote, you're too honest. Hundreds of thousands are going to hate your guts. People are going to think you're stupid. Pence goes on to write that he challenged Trump, the Trump's attorney, John Eastman, two days before January 6th actually happened, saying Eastman didn't even believe his own advice he was giving Trump. Pence writes, quote, I turned to the president and said, Mr. President, did you hear that? Even your own lawyer doesn't think I have the authority to return electoral votes. Then, on the eve of the insurrection, Pence says, quote, I had a feeling January 6, 2021, was going to be a very long day. Of course, we all know what happened next. Pence was rushed to safety as rioters broke in, looking for him personally. Pence told his Secret Service agents at the time, quote, I'm not leaving. I'm not giving those people the sight of a 16-car motorcade speeding away from the Capitol. Pence writes, quote, I heard footsteps and angry chanting. Making our way to the basement of the Capitol took a few extra minutes because I insisted that we walk, not run. As they were hiding from the rioters, an assistant to Pence showed him what Trump had tweeted right in the middle of that attack. Trump said, quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. Pence writes he ignored the tweet and got back to work. Eight days later, Pence says he stopped by the Oval Office and that the night before, Trump had, quote, unequivocally denounced the violence at the Capitol. Pence congratulated him on his address, and Trump said, I knew you'd like it. Pence writes that he seemed discouraged, so I reminded him that I was praying for him. Trump's response, don't bother. Pence's book comes out on Tuesday. That's the same day Trump has promised to make an announcement at Mar-a-Lago teasing a presidential run. Pence is also scheduled to participate in a CNN town hall on Wednesday. So joining us now, who better to discuss, Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan. David Urban, you had a fascinating quote yesterday that I want to read about what happened. You said, talking about the Republican anger effort on Tuesday, you said, quote, it's clear the center of gravity of the Republican Party is in the state of Florida, and I don't mean Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, sure. I mean, the kid, it, it's the elephant in the room, right? Ron DeSantis crushes in, in, uh, in the state of Florida, builds an incredible coalition that can be, you know, if he could replicate it nationwide, would be, uh, would be very formidable. And, and so I think, you know, if you're a Republican in America today and you're looking to have a Lincoln Day dinner and you're looking for a speaker, it's not going to be Donald Trump. You're going to want Ron DeSantis to come. And so I, I, my, my point is, you know, it's shifted to Tallahassee from Mar-a-Lago. Ron DeSantis is, uh, is the future, as the, as the New York Post said so the eloquently. Future. Yeah, de, oh, the future. Well, I mean, that's, you know, it's the prognostication. But let me ask you, you're saying Ron DeSantis had, and, you know, Caitlin, just this whole thing on the book. Why isn't it Mike Pence? Is it? Yeah, so I, I think, look, I, I like the vice president. He's an incredibly, you know, he's a good man, nice man, honorable man. He did, a, he, that day he stood in the breach and kind of- So you're saying there's democracy. a chance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Don't, like, just the movie. There's, there's always a chance. Look, I mean, that's the beautiful part about elections. Like, great democracy was on the ballot this time and the democracy won. We had a huge election, tons of people voting. You know, Democrats are very concerned about, you know, all these the myriad of bad things that could happen. 
and they didn't. And that's the great part. You know, well, that, the, my point is, we did the whole thing. Mike Pence has a book coming out, right? He's, gonna, he's doing the thing here on CNN. But then and it, you pivot it right to Ron DeSantis. No one is talking about well, listen, there's, there's obviously going to be a lot of people running, right, for president. And as we saw last time, there's a giant field, 16, 17 people. No one thought Donald Trump was going to be the, the nominee when that started out, right? And that's why they have this process, right? Lieutenant Governor could tell you, yeah. when he ran, I'm sure there are a lot of people. He may have been the favorite, may not have been the favorite, but the end. That's why you have elections. I thought your interview, I was telling Caitlin this earlier with Caitlin yesterday, was really the interview of the day yesterday. I think what you said was so important for America to hear, for many Republicans to hear. And you talked about uh, not maybe a pivot, but a definite turn and pivot. And I just wonder if a Mike Pence is enough of a pivot for the party, right? Yes, he's writing this now and saying this now. And yes, he did and stood up for the Constitution on that day. It's critically important. But he also stood by the president's side and didn't say things through so many moments uh, during that during during the presidency. Yeah, there's no way to deny Donald Trump got fired Tuesday night. And the search committee has brought a few names to the top of the list. And Ron DeSantis <laughs> is one of them. I think Ron DeSantis is being rewarded for a, a new thought process with Republicans and that solid leadership. Right? We watched that play out in Georgia. Brian Kemp beat the brakes off Stacey Abrams, you know, because he really got to put leadership on display through a pandemic and economic upheaval and whatnot. You know, and, and in Georgia, I think we're going to watch this play out over the next four weeks. My advice, if anybody in the Herschel Walker team wanted to listen, would be to make three successful phone calls. One is to tell Donald Trump to stay out of Georgia for four weeks. He's toxic and he would do nothing to help the ticket. Secondly, I would pick up the phone and call Brian Kemp and ask him for his help and apologize for not endorsing him during the primary against David Perdue. And third, I'd call Ron DeSantis and ask him to come to Georgia as often as he possibly can the next four weeks. That would be a winning recipe for Herschel Mike Walker. Pence wasn't That's in any of those. Governor, right? He's smart. Yeah. Mike yeah. Pence wasn't in any of those in any of those three recommendations. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, look, this yeah. is just my opinion. I think Mike Pence has got <clears throat> a difficult, uh, you know, hold a thread um, through. Because he's got to have to explain the four years of being alongside Donald Trump, right? right. And there's, there's a process yeah. there that is an angry and vile process that we're having to move past. I think Republicans are now in a window of opportunity where if we don't actually get stuff done, if we just complain about stuff, right? If we just complain about immigration, if we just complain about health care, if we just complain about all of these issues, but don't actually do something, then we've got problem, mm -hmm. right? Then 2024 becomes blurred and it doesn't become an easy target. Mm -hmm. The first 100 days of, of our Congress, if it's a, a Donald Trump you know, wish list, we're, we got problems. But if we go to work for the actual average American that's going to be worried about getting laid off in the next two hours, then I think we got a chance to really move to the needle. To Poppy's point and to your point, Brian Kemp stood up to Donald Trump and said, look, the, the election was not stolen, right? He stood up to Donald Trump. Mike Pence did not do that. He did stand up for the Constitution, but he's going to have a lot to answer to when it comes to what happened with Donald Trump and why he didn't stand there, up. There is, there's this, I don't know what's the right term for it, maybe a Trump drag factor. Right. right? Everybody who's, who's tightly associated with Donald Trump, and we watched it play out all over the country in these races, certainly watched it play out in Georgia. I mean, the drag factor is tangible. It was, uh, you know, what, eight, eight or nine points between Brian Kemp and, and Herschel Walker, and we've seen it play out all over the country. The Trump drag factor is real, and it's only getting worse. And can I just say quickly, because I just double-checked myself, Pence backed Kemp while Trump was backing Purdue in that in that race, you know, Pence was behind Kemp at the time. David, though, when you talk to other Republicans, I think the question is: we, we, the royal, we always talk about Trump when something happens, as if it's over. His grip on the power is clearly oh. gone. Uh, his grip on the party—that's not true. Clearly, if you no, watch the primaries, he's got the voters. So, is it bad? Just bad headlines that Trump will survive ultimately? I mean, I don't know. This is a, this 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 hits a little different than the past, right? 
And, and people are saying, well, why not on January 6th? No, I, I can't tell you. It's like, you know, it, 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 you know, it's, it is until it isn't, right? That's how that's this president, how it's, he's operated. And, and uh, you know, th- this just feels different. People like, they, they don't like losing. Ben Shapiro is out, you know, on a pot, on, 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 on social media saying, look, we got to reevaluate. Mm-hmm. Candace Owens, right? These are, these are Look at the wall. Can we pull right? up I mean, the Wall Street Journal? I mean, incredible. Uh, wall Street Journal, well, the, the New York Post loser, is one right? thing, but to see the Wall Street Journal editorial board uh, write the Republican Party's biggest loser, I think is... Right. It, it, it is. It is important. But you know what? The, the, there are so many people back in Pennsylvania and Florida and Kentucky and Iowa that are ride or die Trumpers. Right. And, and they're not going to leave this guy. And, and listen, the President Trump um, has a, a loyal base of probably right around 30 percent in the Republican Party that aren't going anywhere until may, maybe somebody else gives them uh, an, an alternative or an option. And, and literally nobody stepped up yet. So the, the, President Trump's going to announce this next coming week. This Governor DeSantis has announced Vice President Pence hasn't announced. So there is nobody else in the mix as of yet. You mentioned two of the extremists in the party. You're talking about Ben Shapiro and um, Attorney Candace Owens, right? But those aren't the people who are deciding elections right now. No, no, but those they are, may be the, the loudest voices and the, 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 the MAGA folks, right? But they're not necessarily the folks who are going to the polls and deciding. No, but the, and, and, and to your point, Don, you know, friends of mine back in Western Pennsylvania, right? Good friends of mine. They're ride or die Trumpers. I, I keep sending them information. I say, look, here's what's happened. Like, David, do you really believe the president lost? I said, yeah, he lost. And I, I'd like him to win. I wish the guy would have won in 2020, but let me explain to you how he lost. And they're like, no, you're wrong. And even this past, you know, on election day, you know, they, they're giving me anecdotes about people being sent extra ballots and look how bad things are. And I'm like, that, those are just anecdotal. And I have to, I run them down and fact check them for and try to try to help them. But you, you, you can't persuade them. They're not you persuadable. You think he'll announce? Uh, yeah, I, I think that I think um, uh, former president's going to run for for a variety of reasons, right? You think he should run? Uh, look, it's America. Everyone, everyone gets a chance to run, right? That's not an answer. <laughs> that's that's you might it. See a, a lot of Republicans yeah. getting in. We'll wait to see that. Jeff Duncan, David Urban, Thank as you. always. Good Thanks, to see you. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you both. Let's talk about the Nevada Senate and governor's races. Still too close to call. Thousands of mail-in ballots came in overnight, so we have a ways to go. We will have a live report from Clark County from the Election Center next. Plus, here's what we're watching. It's Tropical Storm Nicole. It's down in Florida as the state braces for high winds and flooding. More CNN this morning to come after the break. So this morning, the Nevada Senate race is still too close to call. Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is facing a strong challenge from Republican Adam Laxalt, which could tilt the balance of power in the chamber. CNN's Rosa Flores live for us in Las Vegas for CNN this morning. What's a good morning and what's the very latest on the ground? Don, good morning. The headline here overnight is that the tight U.S. Senate race here in the state of Nevada just got tighter. Republican Adam Laxalt was ahead by 2.7 percent. Now that is 2.44 percent against his opponent, Democratic incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto. All this as we learned that there are tens of thousands of ballots that haven't been processed. They're not part of the results yet. Just here in Clark County, where I am, the most populous county, home to Vegas. Don, I want to break down where these ballots are exactly and where they came from so that we can get an idea of what we're talking about here. This is according to the Clark County Registrar. He says that 12,700 mail ballots were picked up by the USPS at USPS 
on Wednesday alone. Those are beginning to be processed. There were 300 drop boxes on election day that were only picked up. They were not counted. They were only secured by police. They're working on those as well, Don. And then you have 5,396 ballots that need to be cured. Voters have until Monday to do that. And then there are 5,555 provisional ballots that, of course, uh, voters have to figure out the registration. That has to be settled out. So when there is a race with a margin that is this razor thin, Don, you and I know that every single vote counts. And it's not just the U.S. Senate race here in the state of Nevada. It's also the governor's race. Right. So we're going to be here. We're going to follow everything to make sure that all of those votes are counted. I Don. know you will. Rosa Flores, thank you very much. Bringing the energy at 426 in the morning out there, Rosa. <laughs> the governor's race in Arizona is also still too close to call. Democrat Katie Hobbs leads Republican candidate Carrie Lake by just 13,000 votes this morning. But a quarter of all ballots still have not been tallied. Let's talk about this with national political enterprise reporter for The Washington Post, Ruby Kramer, who's not only been on the campaign trail with Carrie Lake, interviewed her a number of times, but also wrote, I think, hands down the best most insightful, eye-opening profile of her. It was fantastic. Uh, Caitlin and I were talking a lot about it. High praise, high praise. So, okay, you've been in touch uh, with Carrie Lake's campaign since Tuesday. What are they saying? a little bit. Tuesday night, radio silence. I think the margin was so wide that I think people in the room, at least, at the election night party where they were, were, you know, supposed to be celebrating this big red wave blowout victory were feeling a little spooked. By Wednesday or by late Tuesday, something seems to have shifted. Um, the word that I got back inside her campaign was they feel amazing. Um, and it was sort of back to that very brash, very confident posture that we've come to know from Carrie Lake basically at all points. Um, yeah. One thing, of course, that we've all been talking about here is what the results are going to actually look like, but also the questions of whether or not she's going to dispute them. She's already been raising some unfounded concerns so far about it. What is your sense, given how closely you followed her around, her husband around, you know the way they tick uh, based on this reporting, what do you think could happen there? I think one important thing to understand about Carrie Lake, and it's something we've seen from the moment she got in this race last summer, more than a year ago, is that election denialism is fundamental to the campaign apparatus that she has built. And it is fun- it's fundamental in an operational sense and in what she talks about on the campaign. It's also fundamental stylistically. So it's sort of the linchpin or the vehicle in which she's able to express loyalty to Donald Trump. It is the, the vehicle through which she's able to stage a lot of these confrontations she has with the press. Um, and as you know, she picks fights with reporters at every opportunity and then videotapes them, puts them online and gins up this huge online following on social media. So it's also the vehicle for her to create online support. So I think it's worth asking, does Carrie Lake, the campaign, the candidate, exist without this kind of fundamental election denialism thing? It was sort of there from the beginning. Um, So that's on my mind as now we wait to see what happens in this race. If she loses, does she concede? I think Republicans in the state don't know her to be a kind of candidate who would do that. If she wins, um, I think back to her Republican primary election this summer where she won that race. It took a while, but she did eventually won. And when she came out in front of cameras the next day to um, announce her victory, she said, we won because we outvoted the fraud. Mm. So... It's always been a part of her story, and I think it will sort of be there no matter what. Does she exist without the invention of enemies? She invents enemies. Um, She looks for moments. It's about a spectacle and stunts. 
And so without that, does she exist? And she's managed to co-opt the people of Arizona into believing, I think, something that she's actually not, right? You know, it's invented, right? It's an act. It's, it's very um, well-executed performance art. Right. And I think the question of whether or not she genuinely... You're so be- smart. <laughs> so you are exactly right. Go on. Whether or not she actually believes it, and a lot of Republicans have looked at this race from the beginning as she sort of emerged and took on a very well-funded primary opponent, won that race when nobody thought she could. Um, one question they were asking was, is this genuine? Does she really believe all this stuff? Does she really think all reporters are part of a corrupt, immoral system? I think no matter what, that question is irrelevant because whether or not she believes it, that is how she it's, will govern. It's working, and, it's and I working think for it's her. a lesson that she learned from President Trump, right? Yeah. A former pro-choice Democrat who sort of remade himself in the image of a conservative icon. Yeah, Ruby Very Kramer. Good. Yeah, fantastic reporting. Thank we'll you. have you back on to talk about Carrie Lake as well. Meanwhile, Hurricane Nicole has been downgraded now to a tropical storm. Florida is still bracing, though. More flooding, more tornadoes. We have a live report from Florida. That's next. Strong winds and surging waves along Florida's east coast as Hurricane Nicole made landfall overnight. The system has now weakened to a tropical storm, but of course we are still seeing the effects of it. So we have CNN's Layla Santiago live in the Indian Atlantic, Florida for CNN this morning. Layla, what conditions are you seeing? Clearly we can see that you're standing in a lot of wind, but what are you actually seeing on the ground? Well, since we last spoke, Caitlin, uh, we've moved further south. So let me show you what I'm seeing right now. I'll take you straight to those traffic lights so that you can see power is out and that wind is still moving the traffic lights, moving uh, the, the, the trees. So wind gusts uh, still very powerful. Uh, it's still moving street signs. And I want to show you right behind me, you can see that this is closed off. That would be because that's a a downed power line, which is what officials will definitely be working today as they do the damage assessment. So let's take a walk. Let's go see uh, what the beach looks like here in India Atlantic. You can see that uh, water still remains pretty aggressive coming in, still pounding the, the beach area here. And listen, you know, something that's interesting to note is the timing here on two fronts. One, the hour. We're coming up on 7, or, well, it is 7.30. Uh, and in about an hour, you're going to see high tide, which officials tell me is a major concern right now because while storm surge may be down, water levels remain high, and we could actually see uh, pretty high levels with high tide coming in. So the idea that this is over by any means uh, is far from the case right now. And again, I cannot let this go without uh, pointing out that we are just six weeks out of Hurricane Ian. So this coastline uh, is going to be very different uh, given that they were vulnerable because of coastal erosion after Hurricane Ian. And then now Nicole continues to pound the area, Caitlin. Yeah, so many of the dunes had already been wiped out by the damage from that storm. Layla, what about Brevard County officials? What are they saying that they're watching and is really their biggest concern this morning? Right, so I talked to them uh, since the last time we spoke, so just in the last 10, 15 minutes. Their big concern right now is making sure that everyone stays home, not having people come out and about because this is not 
over yet. We're still seeing the impacts of, of, of as I mentioned, beach erosion just further north. Volusia County uh, deemed dozens of buildings unsafe, directly correlated to that beach erosion. Structures teetering right on the edge. We're seeing impacts with the airports, flights, more than 1,200 flights canceled because of Tropical Storm Nicole this morning. So officials in Brevard County and throughout Florida uh, making a big deal about this being far from over. Take a look. You can see the water coming in where we are right now. Um, that's the first time we've seen it this morning anyway since we've been here come up this this um, to this area. So again making the point that those wind gusts remain the water levels we expect to really come up over the next hour with high tide being right around 8.30 in this area. Yeah, Lila Santiago, I know you're watching it closely. Please be careful in this next hour as that high tide is coming in. You bet. All right, ahead for us. We've talked about a lot about the future of the Republican Party this morning, right, after the surprising midterm results. But what about the future of the Democratic Party? Is the party more liberal? Is the center a little more left than we thought? We'll talk about it ahead. So Democrats outperformed expectations all across the country, and some key results suggest Tuesday was a good night for progressives in particular. Turn now to our senior data reporter, Harry Data, data Enton, who <laughs> is at the battleground desk for us. Good morning to you, Harry. Morning. So where do progressives score these wins? I mean, across the country, but we'll zoom in on a few races to start off with. Let's start off in Pennsylvania, right? The Senate race there. Uh, John Fetterman easily defeating Mehmet Oz, who went after Fetterman over his record on crime. Remember, Fetterman, someone who ran as a progressive in the 2016 Democratic senatorial primary in Pennsylvania, wasn't successful, got through the primary this time around. And look at that margin, nearly a four-point margin. That may go over four points once we get all the votes in. A clear win there. Let's also stick in the state of Pennsylvania. We'll go to a congressional race right around the Pittsburgh area. And what do we see there? We see Summerlee, who there was a lot of last-minute doubts. Ooh, you know, this is a very Democratic district. Could she hold on? She was the progressive, won a tight primary race. But look at that result. A clear win there, a double-digit win. It turns out all that last-minute bedwetting wasn't really, didn't really affect things. She won easily. We'll go down to Texas now, right? Now, this is a district right around Austin, and it's a very progressive district. But it's also about replacing folks who, you know, getting more progressives in these very liberal areas to start off with. And Greg Kazard, look at that margin. 45 points, easy win there. And so this is also about filling these Democratic districts with more progressive members, like we saw in New York with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, replacing a more moderate member. But it was, forget the candidates for a second, let's also talk about ballot measures, right? Abortion was on the ballot throughout the country in a number of different states. We'll go to Kentucky. No was the no constitutional right to an abortion. So no was the pro-abortion right side in Kentucky. Such a red state, and look at that. The pro-abortion rights side winning by nearly five percentage points. So even in a state like Kentucky, if abortion rights is winning there, then you know the country is really on the side of abortion rights. And finally, I want to take a look at our exit poll because we had an interesting question there about immigration, right? Republicans have been running on immigration, a hard line on immigration. And we asked in our exit poll, immigrants today to the U.S., do they do more to help or hurt the country? Well, according to our exit poll, the majority of Americans said they do more to help the country than hurt the country which I think gives you an indication, at least on two important issues, immigration and abortion, maybe folks are a little bit more liberal than we give them credit for. Oh, Don? Interesting. Very interesting. Thank you, Harry. Appreciate it. So joining us now with more um, on the Democrats, what happens? in political commentators, Bakari Sellers and Paul Begala. Good evening. I mean, good morning. <laughs> good morning. So good evening. 
<laughs> Seven straight hours on the. I still. I. I need more sleep, as you know. <laughs> I'm so glad you guys are here. I, look, can we move this forward? The, the election. The election is behind us. The results are, are still. The many results are still ahead of us. But can we move this forward? Because it doesn't feel. Um, well, it does almost feel like a second-term pivot for this president, even though it is a midterm, right? And I think he can learn from what happened with Bill Clinton. Seeing President Biden speaking to reporters yesterday and saying, hey, look, I want to work with everybody. This isn't as bad as it. So what happened? Now what? Now what? Well, now he has to. We still don't know. This is what's amazing, whether the House or the Senate is going to be in his party or the opposite, or, or if the two will split. That's kind of amazing. And in that sense, it's a win for the Democrats. Mm-hmm. Right. And we talked about this before. Every single midterm this century, we have flipped either the House or the Senate or both. This is a time of great churn. And they're not churning. To, to, in other words, what Biden does have things on the right track. He said that yesterday. I think he surprised uh, uh, Zeke Miller when uh, Zeke asked him that question. So he said, yes, I like what I've been doing. And I, I think Democrats respond to that. So you doggone right. And, and I, I, the thing is, Harry's right. A lot of progressives won. A lot of moderate Democrats won, too. Right. Mikey Sherrill in, in New Jersey and Josh Gottheimer in New Jersey, Abigail Spamberger, Henry Cuellar, Colin Allred. A lot of good moderates won, too. The, this is something I don't often say. The Democrats are united. Mm-hmm. I'm not used to that. You'd much rather go to Thanksgiving dinner at your Democratic uncle's house than at your Republican aunt's house. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an inflection it's a much more united point. Party. I, you know, I, I, I have to push back on a lot of people who say, well, now how is he going to govern with a Republican majority in the House and then you know, a, a evenly divided Senate. And I say, well, you, you forget that all of his major accomplishments, you had COVID relief, you had infrastructure, you had the Inflation Reduction Act. Those were all bipartisan. Right. So this and is the gun bill. He even got Republicans. This is not something new to him. This is not this does not mean that government is going to slog to some type of halt, because this president has actually said some things that many of us look side eyed at him about. The first was that Republicans were going to break their MAGA fever. And everybody was like, man, these Republicans out their mind. They're they crazy. This ain't going to happen. <laughs> and what are they doing now? Talking about divorcing Donald Trump. He said that he could get Congress in D.C. back to bipartisanship. And all of his major accomplishments have been bipartisan. And so, uh, you know, when asked what is he going to change, I think the correct answer is nothing because the country responded to him in a way that they haven't responded to any president in history. That's a weird thing. All of the, you know, criticism that the president got, you know, is he too old? Is he trying too hard to, to, with this bipartisanship? He's, you know, this is a Senate and a Congress that years ago that he worked with and it's not the same anymore, but he's getting stuff done. And I think we have to, and, and Democrats around the country, and one of the things that's fascinating is you have someone who's 80 years old and what he was able to do yesterday with young voters. We haven't really specifically mm-hmm. dug into the numbers yet because votes are still coming in. But what we do know is that voters between the ages of 18 and 35 came out in extraordinary numbers. Mm-hmm. And what they did not come out for was Donald Trump's Republican Party. Well, and look at two steps that President Biden took recently, which came to student loans and marijuana usage. And the big steps coming from the White House, those were two things that were aimed at appealing to young voters from the White House. There's a reason they did them right before the midterms. When he got asked about running in 2024, I feel like the calculus changed overnight. Even from what we were hearing from Democrats, he still was not ready to go out there and say he's running. What'd you make of that response? I thought it was a tiny crack in the door, but he's running, I think. Yeah. I don't, he hasn't talked to me about it, but I think he's running. But you got to leave a tiny crack in case he changes his mind or things change or the family's not into it. He, he, I noticed the mm-hmm. first lady was sitting at that press conference. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And he looked over at her. <laughs> We're going to go away and have a family meeting. Uh, but why wouldn't he? I know he's old and a lot of people are tired of blah, blah. 
But he has he has done more in two years than a guy half his age could do in four. Mm. And so, you know, as like the kids say in sports, scoreboard, look that, what he's done. That's a good question, though. Why wouldn't he? Right. Why, why wouldn't he? Why would you have to ask somebody else? I mean, I think he's doing a great job. I'm a kind of a Biden guy. I like what he's doing. Mm. Um, th- we have seen a lot of emerging new stars it, in the Democratic the, Party the in this election. The question, why Tuesday? wouldn't he, is because of the toil of the campaign. Yeah. And we have to remember that in 2020, Joe Biden won an abbreviated campaign because of COVID. And so he wasn't in every diner in Iowa. He didn't have to go to every Super tu- SEC Tuesday state. I mean, the campaign is a monster mm-hmm. in itself. Mm-hmm. And the question, I'm not saying that he can't do it, the question he has to answer is, does he want to does go through that and yeah. go through, you know, primary debates? Because he's going to be primary. Mm-hmm. That's a fact. We're, we're new age Democrats. Now, I'm going to support him in that primary, but he's going to be. You think he's going to get primaried? Of course. By a serious By candidate? Did Hillary Clinton get primary? Hillary but she wasn't it, it, doesn't, it doesn't even matter if the candidate is serious or not. But Barack there, Obama didn't get primary. Bill Clinton didn't get primary. There's going to be somebody. There's going to be somebody. This is a, this is not Bill Clinton or Barack Obama's <laughs> Democratic Party anymore. I wish it was. There are a lot of there are a lot of us who are going to support uh, Joe Biden. Let's be extremely. But who clear. would primary him? I, I I feel firm in the belief that he'll get primaried from the left. There'll be somebody from the left who says that he did. Maybe not a more progressive. Maybe a more progressive. And the problem is, you have to deal like, with yeah. that. You have to deal with that in a Democratic primary. You have to run the race. You have to do the debates. And that takes a toll on you to bring up my, my, my larger thing. How he, significant, he also- Paul, do you think it is that uh, independence broke for Democrats in a midterm like this? You, defying you history. Change election. It yeah. can't happen. I don't it's think like people are talking ab- about that enough and how incredible it is. It's unbelievable. There's only two messages in politics ever, just like in life. Stay the course or time for a change. That's kind of it. That's it. This is a third option. It's like enough. Enough with, as we Catholics say, enough with the Michigas, right? Enough with the craziness. You know, and, and I think for the first time ever, we're seeing a brake pedal against a party that's out of power. Now, Justice Alito had a lot to do with that because he does have power. The Supreme Court did take away a woman's right to choose. But otherwise, they're just looking at potential abuse and saying, whoa, whoa, stop, enough. He, that's that's a really amazing thing. I've never seen that before. Yeah. Paul says he's he's seeing a United Democratic Party for the first time in, in a while. I'm wondering, are, are Democrats get feeling like you know walking a little taller and a little no, prouder no since what happened? I mean, the, one of the things that we that we're beginning to do is share our story. I mean, like people ask the question, what are some of the highlights that you saw from Tuesday night? I mean, while you know. Uh, news stations around the country are gloating over what Ron DeSantis did in Florida. I'm like, wait, whoa, whoa. Did you see Big Gretch in Michigan? (laughs) They flipped both the House and the Senate. You know, she won a resounding race against an election denier. I mean, Gretchen Whitmer is a superstar and she won a swing state. So let's actually talk about her with the same energy that we put behind Ron Mm -hmm. DeSantis. Look at Kamala Harris. She went around the country for the last three months in places that were extremely tight. And we pulled out those races. I mean, we have young people who are doing great things. Jevin Hodge in Arizona running a very close race right now. We have, and then I have to give a shout out to my guy this morning, Wes Moore. Yes. Wes Moore. I Wes Moore. Were, I mean, Wes I knew Moore that's is, where you were going. I mean, Wes Moore is just my guy. I mean, I, did been, you see Wes Moore get up on the stage and he gave that little like? Listen, listen, <laughs> you know, you know as, as, as the kids say, Paul, you're, you're a little closer to the kids. Than <laughs> but he is him, right? Yeah. He is him. Yeah. He is a superstar. Right. He's somebody who's going to govern. Very well in Maryland. And so we had a good night. And yes, we're walking taller because the country responded to it. The president needs to know that if he decides to retire, he's got a lot of rising stars. By Mm -hmm. by the way, Josh Shapiro, Maura Healy, 
You mentioned oh, Governor yes. Whitmer, Governor-elect Moore. Th these are really impressive people coming up, uh, not just the 17 who ran against him last but time. But let me just say this talent. for the Twitter, Biden 2024. There you go. All right, you and me, uh, brother. Bakari, <laughs> thank you. Paul, thank you very thank much. Thank you, both. Uh, this morning, the races in Arizona, still too close to call. We're going to speak live with the election official in Maricopa County on the status of 400,000 ballots. And he beat the Democrat in charge of getting other Democrats elected, something that has not happened in 40 years. We will talk to New York's newly elected congressman, Republican Mike Lawler. He'll tell us how he did it. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Hello and good morning, everyone. Look how much energy we have on this <laughs> Thursday, November 10th. Excited to be here? So excited. Fueled by the magic wall. <laughs> <laughs> Hurry up and wait. That is what's happening right now. That is the post-election theme for the 2020 midterms. A balance of power remains undecided in the Senate, with votes still being counted in Nevada and Arizona, and Georgia is preparing for a runoff. That's right. The House is also up in the air still this morning. Republicans need nine more seats to take control. But the red wave they were hoping for was more like a ripple, but not here in New York. This is fascinating. We're going to speak coming up this hour with a Republican who managed to knock off a Democratic campaign chief, the DCCC chief in a deep blue state. And President Biden weighing in on it all, coming out not the way they expected yesterday to face the press after the midterm elections. He says he's ready to compromise with Republicans, but he is highlighting he still has that veto pen. In this election season, the American people made it clear they don't want every day going forward to be a constant political battle. So where do Republicans and Democrats come together after that election? We will ask Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar when she joins us live. But first, we're going to go to Don and John Berman at the Magic Wall. All right. So let's bring in our John Berman now for a closer look at these races. All still undecided, a lot of them. Hello to you, sir. Yeah, I bring you magic math and bad handwriting this morning, <laughs> Don. Look, this is where things stand in the House and the races that we've called. 209 for the Republicans, 191 for the Democrats. There are, I'm going to write in small letters, there are 35, 35 races that remain uncalled. Of these, Republicans would need to win nine and Democrats would need to win 27 if they wanted to take control. And the question you're getting from a lot of Democrats this morning is, is there a chance? Is there a chance that Democrats could do this? Well, look at the uncalled races, okay? Democrats actually lead in 24 of them. Republicans lead in 11. So Republicans have what they need. But if you're a Democrat, you're saying, we're close. Mm -hmm. It's close. Let's take a closer look at some of these races to see if in some of the races, and these are the uncalled races where Republicans are leading, if Democrats have a chance. In California, California counts slowly. A lot of mail vote there. And a lot of the races there are very Close. You can see in California's 13th district, just 203 votes separate them. It's only 40% reporting. So this could go either way. You go a little south to the 22nd district. David Valadeo is a Republican who voted for impeachment. He's an incumbent who's done well. This is a D plus 12 seat, but still only 30% reporting. Could there be room to grow there? You go all the way down here in California. It's sort of the same story. This one's a little a little bigger of a margin, Young Kim, 55% in there. And here you can see only 52%. And so Democrats maybe, maybe 
could make up some ground there. So, you know, it isn't over in the House, even though Republicans have a clearer shot. But there's still a lot of counting to do. Yeah. So but listen here, when it comes to these very tight races, it's, it's all about where the votes left to be counted are, where they're coming from. Yeah, in that's California, make the big in difference. California, that's hard to tell again because there's so much mail coming what? in. We're just going to yeah. have to wait there. The Senate yeah. situation, again, the Senate situation, three races undecided. Georgia, we know, is going to a runoff December 6th. What we don't know yet is Nevada and Arizona. And the situation in these two states has changed some overnight quickly. In Nevada, Adam Laxalt, the Republican, leads the incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto by 15,000 votes. But this margin changed overnight. When some people went to sleep, Adam Laxalt was ahead by 23,000. Oh, it's 15, huh? They counted some of the mail vote in Clark County and also in Washoe County up here in that Titan. There's 110,000 mail ballots left to count. And if the margins that Catherine Cortez won those two ballot batches that we saw last night, if she maintains that margin 60%, she could overtake Adam Blackstall in the next few days. So watch that closely. You know what you, you've been saying? You said, listen, you, you take Georgia off the board, right? You, yes. you put your hand over and you say, if you take Georgia off the board and you look at this, is Nevada, is that, is, is that for all the marbles right there, possibly? Both are for all the marbles. Both. So, so right now, in terms of where they're leading, the reason I put this up here, Georgia right now, if you take it off the board, it's 49 seats for Republicans. But if both of these are blue... It would give Democrats 51. If both of these are red, it would give Republicans 51. So we won't, you know, we could know control of the Senate in the next week, or it could take until December. Uh, I want to quickly show you Arizona also. Uh, Mark Kelly leads by 95,000 votes. They have at least 560,000 votes left to count in that state. We got some new count overnight. His lead grew from the 80,000 region to about 95,000. That came from mail ballots they counted that were received by before Tuesday in Maricopa County and Pima County. Again, Blake Masters has the runway to overtake this margin, but he has to do well. He'd have to get about 58% of the remaining vote to overtake Mark Kelly. Not impossible, but a steep hill to climb. Hmm, interesting. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, let's bring in, how about you, John Stander, because I want you to help me out with this interview. I want to bring in now the chairman of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, Bill Gates. We spoke to him uh, overnight as the, the ballots were coming in and being counted. Maricopa County is the most populous county in Arizona, where there were an estimated 400,000 remaining ballots left to count as of Wednesday night. Good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Can you give us the exact number of votes left to be counted, sir? Yeah, so thanks for having me. That's right. We're, we're right there between about 400 and 410,000 ballots left to count. 400 and 410 ballots left to count. And do you know spe specifically, but usually they say that means if, it, if it's mail-in ballots, what have you, it leans Democrat or, you know, we don't know if it's uh, what happens in in. Uh, in the state, because that has all changed since COVID. Can you give us some direction on that? Yeah, that is really tr tough to predict where these might lean. And obviously, that's not our focus anyway. Our focus is simply on counting these accurately. Mm -hmm. But as we've seen in, in, in the last couple of elections, the mail-in ballots tend to lean Democrat. Mm -hmm. But as you get closer to Election Day, we know that Republicans are really turning out in big numbers. So we're now getting into what we call late early. So these are early ballots that would have been uh, that we would have received like over the weekend or in, in 
specifically 290,000 that were dropped off on election day at our vote centers. Okay, that was that was going to be my next question. So 290,000 is election day, okay? So that leaves That's right. So 110,000 that were received before election day? Well, a little bit less than that because we also have 17,000 ballots yet to be counted that were in that box 3. So these are ballots that were uh, attempted, you know, were not read by the tabulator on election day. So those are people who came in to vote in person. Okay. So that was take on out a- the 17. 17- Go on. That was on election day. Just to clarify so, so people know, that was on election day. There were certain ballots put in this special box because of a printer error, correct? That's correct. Almost all of those. We call them box three. It's for whatever reason, those ballots were not tabulated. They were not read by the tabulator. Most of them are going to be that situation that you described on. Gotcha. So north of 90,000 received before Election Day and some of those other ones were those segregated votes. Can you give us a sense of each day? How is this going to play out? How many votes are you going to count each day? And of these difference, like which votes are counted next? Which will we know from the votes that arrived before Tuesday next or will be the votes that were handed in on Tuesday? So, you know, we can't uh, really zero in on that with specificity. They would tend to be probably those that we received earlier first. And then as we move on, we're getting more into those election day, uh, the mail-in ballots that we received on election day that people dropped off. But here's the issue is adjudication. Okay, Mm -hmm. if for some reason we have ballots that were dropped off, that there is some reason, let's say maybe on one of those races, the voter marked both, you know, candidates, let's say in the Senate race, and maybe they circled one of them and said, no, I mean this. That goes into adjudication. And we have boards of one Republican, one Democrat. They look at those to try to determine what the voter's intent was. So that's a little thing that that might impact which votes are being counted at on what date. But generally, as we move forward in the count, we're getting closer and closer to Election Day. Bill Gates, the chairman of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. We appreciate it. We know it's a very busy time for you. 400,000 votes. That's not an insignificant number. No, no. You know, it's a lot. There's, like I said, there's a lot of runway there. If Blake Masters can hit about 58 percent of the remaining vote, he would have enough to overtake. Here's the thing, though. This is it's not 110,000 before Tuesday, but it's about 90,000 before Tuesday. Some of those were released overnight, and we saw Mark Kelly winning, you know, 55 to 60 percent of those. About 50. So he actually is doing better than Blake Masters in the batch that would be down here. You might expect Masters to do better up here, but is it enough? Is it that 58 percent? Hard to know. All right, John Berman, appreciate it. Democratic candidates rode a blue wave in places like Minnesota on election night. Not so much in deep blue New York, though. Why is that? We're going to ask Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar. She's going to join us next. Republicans are on pace, but we don't know yet, but they're on pace to hold a slim majority in the House in the next Congress for control of the Senate. May come down to Georgia again as Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker begin campaigning today ahead of a one-month sprint to the crucial December runoff. Let's talk about everything that happened, the red wave that wasn't. Lessons learned. Minnesota Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar joins us. Thank you so much. I don't think there's snow on the ground at home yet. 
But thank you for being here. You're not quite. <laughs> you're, not quite. <laughs> you're wearing blue celebrating. Look, you talked yesterday, Senator, about Democrats defying the tides of history. How do you think your party got it done? Well, as you know, first of all, the average year since in a midterm election since 74, we lose any each party um, loses about 23 seats at least. And in this case, sometimes 50 in the 40s, um, the party that has the presidency. In this case, as you know, there's still a chance we keep the House. Um, but even if the Republicans take it, it is going to be a very narrow margin. How we did it? First of all, candidate quality. We had some incredible candidates in the Senate and the House. Uh, number two, um, when you have a situation that defies the tides of history, it's got to be something monumental going on. And in this case, it was a rejection of the orthodoxy of the Republicans' positions. You have so many of their candidates mm -hmm. basically wanting an abortion ban put in place. Every state that considered that this cycle, every single one basically rejected that idea or actually advocated for codification of Roe v. Wade in referendums. You have economic policies that while everyone knows people are going through tough times, costs um, have gone up and the like, which party had people's backs? And in this case, um, the fact that at the very end, the Republican leadership was raising changes to Social Security, changes to Medicare, I think was a huge and, mistake because that messed with people's economic stability. And finally, democracy was on the line. If the Republican Party wants to keep allowing Donald Trump to pick their candidate, you're going to see the kind of results uh, that you're seeing in red to, states, blue states, and purple states. To get more stuff done for the American people, you guys are going to have to work together even more. And I was reading our hometown paper this morning, the Star Tribune. Let me show you the editorial board headline here. I'm sure you've already read it because we saw a blue wave pretty much in Minnesota, but they still write one Minnesota is still job one, fresh off a stunning election. Democrats have to do more work to unite a divided Minnesota. Doesn't that apply nationally too for you guys? Well, of course it does because I think the message from this election was a number of people, despite their party affiliation, voted against extreme candidates on the right. So what they're voting for is not that they buy every single thing that a Democrat says. What they're voting for is getting things done, civility, working across the aisle when that happens. And in our state, as you know, Poppy, we have one of the biggest surpluses in the country. Um, that's going to be number one for the governor is to make sure we spend that wisely. Uh, number two, uh, in Washington, we have a bunch of things on our plate, including um, getting the defense bill done with Ukraine uh, right before us and the strides that uh, that Zelensky is making against uh, Vladimir Putin. On our plate is the end of the year budget bill to make sure we get that right. As you know, the Electoral Count Act, an effort that I'm leading with uh, Susan Collins and Joe Manchin and others, so we don't have January 6th happen again. All of that is immediately when we get back. And Senator Schumer um, has made it very clear that he wants to get a lot done before the end of the year. Um, and so that's our plan. And from there, 
I always believe that, you know, courage in Washington is not standing by yourself and making a speech. It's whether or not you're willing to stand next to someone you don't always agree with for the betterment of this country. Well, we I'm have a lot to do. I'm exhausted just listening to what's on, on your plate. But I've got to ask you, look, if things turn out the way it looks like it's going, we don't know. I'm going to preface that by saying we don't know. It's going to be a divided government, right? So then how do you get all of those things done that you are wanting to get done when there's already there was gridlock before this election? Well, first of all, the things I was talking about were things we literally have to do in the next two months, including, by the way, our plan, because we believe we have the Republican votes uh, to codify marriage equality into law. Then you go into next year. I think the focus should be on costs. I think we should do more when it comes to uh, funding law enforcement and helping out when so many of our localities are having uh, issues. Um, I think that we have to um, do things like, even though we got to start on bringing down pharmaceutical prices, there's even more we can do on that front. But how do you do it though with a divided government? Oh, you do it by finding common ground. And by the way, uh, with the president's leadership, with Senator Schumer and Speaker Pelosi's leadership, let's look at what we did on a bipartisan basis, gun safety law, um, Sweden and Finland into NATO, um, making sure that we have got the semiconductor, the chips bill done. That was uh, Leader Schumer working with uh, Todd Young. Um, making sure that we got the infrastructure bill implemented and didn't just talk about it. We passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill. So, yes, that was with barely thin, thin margins. But in the Senate, that required, and a bit in the House, that required in the Senate. Every <clears throat> single one of those bills I just mentioned, Don, was bipartisan. So we clearly have shown we can do it, and we can do it if we have a divided government. And I like those numbers coming out of uh, uh, Nevada last night, it's gotten much closer with many, many more ballots to count. Yeah. Um, so to me, the chances of keeping the Senate seem good. We are watching that very closely in Nevada. We've been tracking the magic wall almost every hour this morning. Another question about what's facing Congress is, of course, big tech and how they will handle that. I wonder what you think about how Twitter and whether or not you like the direction that Twitter is going under the new leadership of Elon Musk. See that smile? Um, <laughs> I'm, I have expressed my concerns about this um, multiple times because there are three things we have to do on tech, and this goes beyond Twitter. Uh, number one, we need a federal privacy law. We're one of the only developed nations that doesn't have that. That's crazy. Number two, we need to do something about monopolies. This is a much bigger issue, and this deals with companies uh, like Amazon and Google and the like, where they're self-preferencing their own products. And many countries are working on this. We haven't done anything on it except got the bill I have with Senator Grassley to the floor and we need a vote. The third thing is what you're getting at, the misinformation and having some rules of the road. One of the things we should look at is getting rid of the immunity that these companies have from liability when they amplify hate speech or lies. It's not just that someone posts on it. We get that's going to happen. It's when they're making money off the amplification. And these are tough issues, but there is bipartisan support for a number of them. And we need to take the time and move forward when it comes uh, to tech rules. Section 230, it's critical what you're talking about and what it could mean here with Twitter uh, and the direction. Senator, thank you very Thanks, much. Senator. See you later. It's Stay warm in Minnesota. I was on your new show. I can't wait to be on Have some walleye for me. <laughs> this is going to say, I enjoyed listening to you two Minnesotans you talk. <laughs>
Thank you, Thank Senator. You, Senator. Okay, well, coming up next, he knocked okay. off the congressman in charge of getting Democrats elected, and he did it in deep blue New York. Congressman-elect Mike Lawler is back. Remember, you saw him here earlier this week. Well, I think that made the won. difference, Poppy. That made the difference. He, he appeared in this back. program, and then he won hours later. <laughs> Thank you. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. A GOP sweep across New York, Republicans slipping four congressional seats and putting up a competitive candidate for governor in a traditionally Democratic stronghold. Joining us now for a look at what is happening in the suburbs across the state is CNN's senior political analyst, John Avalon. John, you know, we were watching this so closely yesterday as these results were coming in and New York was so fascinating what happened there. It's extraordinary. I mean, keep in mind, no Republicans won statewide since 2002. But while nationally, Democrats exceeded expectations in New York, it was that red tsunami that had been predicted, particularly in the suburbs. And the symbol of it is Sean Patrick Maloney. He was the chair of the DCCC in charge of congressional campaigns, and he lost his seat. That's almost unheard of in midterm elections, particularly ones that aren't wave elections. But you saw the story top down throughout the suburbs, north and east of the city, redistricting, crime, and a lack of focus by Democrats on winning over suburbs at the expense of trying to run up the vote in the cities. Yeah, and the suburbs on Long Island, we saw how that looked. But also, you know, New York saw basically way more competitive than what it, it typically had been when it even comes to the governor's race. Obviously, Lee Zeldin did not win that race, but he still came within about five points. And yep. so a big question was, did that cause a drag? Did Hochul cause a drag on the other Democrats who were on the ticket with her? Well, here's what's clear. I mean, first of all, Long Island hasn't had four Republicans representing it since 1994, that Republican revolution wave. And Lee Zeldin had been a congressman from New York's first district on Long Island. So that had a, a positive effect. But what I'm hearing from New York Democrats is that Kathy Hochul really invested her money in getting out the vote in the cities and didn't pay as much attention to the suburbs, basically ceding those to Zeldin and the Republicans. And that's where all these wins are coming in. Things that are going to cause a real hangover, that as well as an ineffective response to concerns about rising crime. Something hammered at, something clearly felt acutely in the suburbs that Democrats didn't seem to have a strong response for and helped create in part by bail reform laws in New York that uh, Hochul tried to amend but didn't really address head on. And that hurt Democrats big time. Yeah, some big questions going forward about what that's going to look like, how it affects following elections. John Avalon, thanks for following it closely. One of the Republican wins that John was talking about is Mike Lawler. He defeated his Democratic opponent, who was the incumbent congressman, Sean Patrick Maloney, who is also the chair of the committee that's dedicated to reelecting Democrats. In his victory speech, Lawler talked about the expectations that he faced early on in the campaign. What we were able to do in this time was truly remarkable because this is a district Joe Biden won by 10 points. Uh, and we were running against the chair of the DCCC. When I announced, a lot of people thought, oh, that's nice. Yeah, he'll, he'll make it a race, but he's going to lose. He did not lose. He, in fact, won. So joining us now is Republican Congressman-elect Mike Lawler of New York. You were a rare bright spot for Republicans on Tuesday when they thought there was going to be a wave. There obviously was not. What do you think your victory says about Tuesday night, and what's the big takeaway for you? Well, I think especially in New York, as I've said many times, this was the first time in our nation's history that Democrats controlled everything in Washington, Albany, and New York City. And voters in New York especially were looking for balance and common sense 
uh, restored to every level of government. And I think what we saw by picking up four congressional seats and now sending 11 members of Congress uh, to Washington speaks volumes to that. And, you know, the redistricting process certainly played a big role. I think Democrats got very greedy uh, in trying to gerrymander New York's maps. And when the courts threw them out and drew a fair map, uh, it really gave us an opportunity to, to swing the suburbs uh, back to Republican. When we talked to you last week before yeah. your victory, we, I asked you what kind of congressman you wanted to be if you won. And you've often said you wanted to be like Pete King, Peter King. And he was someone who, you know, has long supported former President Trump. There are big questions about Trump's role following Tuesday night. He said, quote, I strongly believe that he should no longer be the face of the Republican Party, saying the party cannot become a personality cult and saying that Trump's self-promotion and attacks on Republicans like Ron DeSantis and Mitch McConnell were largely responsible for Republicans not having a red wave. Do you agree? Look, I think uh, the president is going to make a determination as to what he wants to do with respect to running. Uh, I would like to see the party move forward. I think any time you, uh, you know, are, are focused on the future, you can't so much go to the past. And, and I think... People are really excited about uh, the opportunity to address the challenges that we're facing as a country. And I think more focus needs to be on the issues mm -hmm. and the substance of those issues than on personalities. For you sure. want to see the party move forward from Trump? Yeah, I think I think moving in a, in a different direction as we move forward uh, is a good thing, uh, not a bad thing. Um, but ultimately, look, the voters will decide what they want to do. Uh, and the former president will decide uh, what he wants to do. But I think uh, my objective in going to Congress is to tackle these issues. Uh, I didn't run uh, on somebody else's platform. I didn't run uh, to be a rubber stamp or one of. I ran on the issues uh, that are facing the American people and facing the people of the state of New York. Uh, and I have offered real solutions. And that's what my objective is as a member of Congress. What do you, President Biden, essentially echoed that yesterday, saying he thinks the American people want things done when he was asked about potential investigations, potential impeachment proceedings against him or members of his administration. And it sounds like you agree with the president. Are you interested in focusing your time on investigations, potential impeachments of this administration or not? Look, I think the top priority is to deal with inflation uh, and the cost of living. That is what I ran on. That is what my focus will be. Obviously, Congress has oversight authority, and there is responsibility with that. Um, but what I don't want to see is what we saw during the Trump administration, where Democrats just went after the president and the administration incessantly. Mm -hmm. If there is real reason to look into something, absolutely. That is the obligation of Congress to do that. There is oversight responsibility. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to just go from one crisis to the next without dealing with the issues uh, that got me elected in the first place. You're and not that's, saying that that's there weren't reasons for the, to have oversight during Trump and for some of the... No, know, but, but, but it was so, at times, so over the top and so partisan, and it doesn't help the country. I mean, this, we're going from one extreme to the other and back and forth every, every two years. That doesn't help Are, the country move forward. Uh, and I think when you're talking about oversight, there needs to be a level of seriousness uh, and there's a responsibility with it. And it can't just be political. 
On the on the other issue, uh, which is a real issue, we just have Christiana Mampour interviewing President Zelensky and the First Lady of Ukraine, and there's a real question if if, if Republicans take control of the majority in the House about what the level of U.S. Uh, support of Ukraine is going to be, given what McCarthy said a few weeks ago. Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, said there not another penny will go to Ukraine. What do you think, and are you confident in sustained U.S. support of Ukraine if the Republicans control the House. So my wife is from Moldova. Her family lives about 30 miles from the Ukraine border as the crow flies. I have been near Transnistria, which is a Russian-occupied area. Um, I am fully committed to supporting Ukraine. At the same level? Absolutely. Look, we have an obligation as a country on two fronts. Number one, Vladimir Putin is a vile thug, and he needs to be uh, contained. If Ukraine falls... Many of those former Soviet satellite states are in real danger. Number two, when Ukraine gave up its nuclear power, we committed to supporting them and protecting them. And we have an obligation to fulfill that commitment. So for me, this is personal uh, on, on a number of levels. Um, you know, and, and I just think uh, we have a responsibility, uh, both from a national security interest, but also uh, to ensure that Vladimir Putin uh, does not uh, advance uh, any further uh, in, in, in his quest uh, to reestablish the former Soviet Union. Before we let you go, are you hearing from Democrats? Because it, for those of us who live, you know, in New York, not necessarily in the city, I live in Long Island, and I work in the city. Um, I don't think any of us, a lot of folks in the studio, we were not surprised. We saw the red wave coming, right? If you lived right. there, you saw the signs, you know, people, you talk, you go out, you go to the diner and restaurants. You felt it. Are you hearing from Democrats who about your win? Oh, absolutely. You know, I, uh, my district has 70,000 more Democrats than Republicans. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't have won it without the support of many Democrats and independents. And, and uh, you know, I think people are excited about the opportunity and, and really looking for change. And, you know, this district is home to Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, George Soros, um, so it's a it's a very diverse district. <laughs> so you're Hillary Clinton's congressman. I am now Hillary Clinton's congressman. <laughs> and, and George Soros' and, congressman. Uh, I look forward to hearing from them yeah. about uh, their concerns and their needs. And you're hearing from people about your appearance here on CNN. Hang on. Absolutely. Can we stop the music, please? Please stop the music. Stop, stop, stop the music. Thank you. Are you hearing from people about appearing here on CNN? Oh, absolutely. I, I think, look, at the end of the day, uh, I have always believed in order to win uh, this district, I needed to go everywhere and talk to everyone. And I can't be afraid because uh, maybe there's some tough questions uh, that come. I'm happy to take those on and I'm happy to go anywhere and talk to anyone. And and frankly, I think that's why I won. Well, we're happy to ask them whenever you want to come on. Congressman-elect, thank Thank you for spending some time with us this morning. Thank you. That's how you do it. Come and take the tough questions. We appreciate it. You heard Congressman-elect mention inflation. We have key inflation data that is coming in. What it means for you, the American consumer, will tell you that's next. Also, Hurricane Nicole hitting Florida overnight. Uh, Now a weaker tropical storm, but still very dangerous. So this just in the CNN, we have some key new inflation data that's just been released. Joining us now, CNN's Rahel Solomon with the numbers. Good morning to you. What do you have? Hi, good morning, guys. So this is something that I don't get to say a lot these days, but a better than expected inflation report. So these numbers just crossing within the last 10 minutes or so. 
showing that prices did increase 0.4% on a monthly basis. But take a look at the annual basis, 7.7%. To put that in context, we were expecting closer to 8%. Last month, that annual number was closer to 8.2%. So what this means is that this actually came in a lot better than most economists were expecting, directionally we're moving in the right direction. Now, is this something that folks and consumers at home are going to cheer in the streets about? Absolutely not. Inflation is still very high, still hovering near 40-year highs, but directionally moving in the right direction. And take a look at futures. Investors like it because it is starting to feel like, well, maybe the medicine is working. Maybe all of these rate hikes are actually starting to work, and you're starting to see a meaningfully uh, cooler inflation report. But a lot of layoffs. Well, yes, that that too. <laughs> so <And> let's. That. <laughs> sorry to rain on the parade. Womp, 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 yeah, poppy. no, I mean, look, it's a fair point because we got this report today, but then we also got news of pretty significant layoffs at Meta, eleven thousand. To put that in context, uh, as of September, the company had eighty-seven thousand workers. So, right, that's about twelve percent of its workforce. So this is really happening in the ad space, and I'm glad you brought it up because we're really starting to see, even though job growth is still strong, even though unemployment is low, in the tech space. That's a very different story, right? I mean, they are really pulling back after growing so much during the pandemic. They're starting to have to pull back some of that growth. And so, you know, I talked to an analyst a few weeks ago after Meta's earnings report, and he said, you know, advertisers know that Meta's ads work. They know that YouTube's ads work. So when you're starting to hear companies like Meta and Alphabet, the owner of YouTube, say they're seeing advertisers pull back, he said it's really saying something. Well, and we had Sarah Fisher on earlier, and something she said that from Axios that stood out to all of us was she kind of likened this, saying it was reminiscent of the dot-com bubble, seeing mm. what's happening with these layoffs. Yeah, I think, look, these are companies that saw explosive growth, certainly during the pandemic, but you could even argue over the last 10 years. These are tech companies that for 10 years, their stocks seemed to go only in one direction, and that was up. And you are seeing, I think the Nasdaq is still off about 32% this year. So these companies are now having a sort of uh, come back to earth moment. So, you know, whether it will be as severe as the dot-com bubble, I'm not sure about that. But it is certainly something in the tech space that a lot of people are watching very closely to see if this will have effects on other parts of the economy, right? Is this just the beginning of what we might start to see in other, uh, other parts of the economy? Or is this very specific mm-hmm. to tech? At this point, we just don't know. Right. Thank you, Rahel. We yeah. appreciate it this morning. More politics now. President Joe Biden made just one congratulatory call to a Republican after the vote. And he is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. We're going to ask him what the president said when he joins us next. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine winning re-election this week by a wide margin, defeating Democrat Nan Whaley. Now, President Biden called DeWine to congratulate him. It is noteworthy because former President Trump endorsed DeWine. On Monday, DeWine spoke at Trump's rally in Ohio and received some boos. Mr. President, thank you very much. You know, in Ohio, Mr. President, we fund the police. So Governor DeWine joins me now. Governor, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Good morning to you. Thank you. So it didn't let you, it didn't stop you from speaking. Why not? Oh, I've been booed before. That's, uh, (laughs) you know, that's the way life goes. But uh, look, I was there to support J.D. Vance. Uh, I'm glad he got elected. Uh, He's going to be a good uh, 
excellent United States senator, a strong conservative voice for Ohio. Would you and the president, the current president, talk about because he made a congratulatory call to you? Well, I, I, I shouldn't get into that. I don't think uh, it's a personal call, but I appreciated certainly the call. You know, the president and I served together 12 years on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, you know, I know him pretty well and have had, you know, that, that relationship that goes back to the time that I was in the United States Senate. Over the last day or so, there's been, um, you know, a lot of sort of hand-wringing over what happened. There was supposed to be a, a red wave, a Republican rave, w- wave. It doesn't seem like it, you know, it, well, it did not happen. Um, we're tr- still trying to see where the balance of power lies in, in, in both chambers. What do, what do you think the lesson is from Tuesday night for Republicans moving forward? Is it a Republican Party without Trump at the helm? Well, I, I think people can look to Ohio. I mean, we're a, a, a center-right state, but it's, it's still a state that Democrats can get elected in. And I think people, uh, you know, supported what we have been doing. We're focused on jobs. We're focused on job training. We're focused on education, early childhood development, um, dealing with the mental health problem. These are practical things that I think people expect us to deal with. We won with 63% of the vote. Uh, you know, we won 85 out of 88 counties. So it was a it was a very, very good victory. I'm very, very grateful for that. I think if you look across the country, uh, particularly governors who did well are governors who, uh, you know, are strong advocates for their state, uh, who are making the tough decisions, who are leaders and who are solving problems. I think that's really the lesson from, uh, you know, Tuesday night. People mm. want people to fix problems mm. and. You know, we're, for example, in Ohio, we're a great manufacturing state. We're attracting new business coming in. We've got a good business climate. Uh, I think people like that. They want their kids to be able to grow up in Ohio, have jobs here, have good jobs, have good job training, good education. Basic, basic things that uh, the public expects. You just said you're glad you campaigned with J.D. Vance for Senate. You just uh, talked about being glad that that he won. Um he also, you know, just a few months ago in March, said again that he thought the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump. That's something you have never said. Uh, and I wonder if you no. want him to stop talking about that now that he's going to be a senator representing your state. Well, I'm not, look, I'm not going to tell J.D. what to talk about or not talk about. I think that, you know, he, he is now going to be the United States senator from the state of Ohio. Uh, he's got big responsibilities. He's got big shoes to fill. Rob Portman did a phenomenal job and continues actually to do a phenomenal job for us. Uh, and I just look forward to working with J.D. Uh, on things that impact Ohio and impact impact our nation. Uh, he's going to be a good, strong, strong voice. And he's got a big portfolio now that uh, things that he's he's got to deal with every day. Governor DeWine, thanks so much for being here this morning. My question for you is, as we're reflecting on what Tuesday means going forward for the GOP, in your estimation, who is the current leader of the Republican Party? Well, look, I mean, we, we do this every time. We, we have an election, and uh, before the votes are even counted, we're thinking about the next election, and there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. Uh, that's going to that's going to play out. Uh, I, I don't think it's time to, you know, weigh in on that. Uh, we'll we'll see how that works. Again, uh, I think that people expect us to govern. I think people expect us to get things done and and to focus on real problems. I mean, we have mental health problems. We're doing some some things in Ohio 
that are new, that are innovative. We're moving forward in that area. We got we have drug addiction problems, things that keep yeah. people behind. I think you know the voters expect us to focus on those things so i'll leave for somebody else the speculation of uh, you know who's going to be the nominee in two years that we got plenty of time to to work on that and can i ask you a question since you were on the campaign trail obviously just for the last few months with nan whaley or against nan whaley your opponent how much did you hear from voters about abortion? Because you and Nan Whaley had very different positions on that. Yeah. And a big question for us was how much voters cared about that in addition to the economy. What did you hear from your voters about that? Well, look, I, you know, I do a lot of retail politics. I'm out talking directly to people, listening to them. And certainly there were people who came up to me and said, Mike, I like what you're doing. I think you've been good on education. You were, you were good during the pandemic. You protected us. You did this. But I can't vote for you because of abortion. So we certainly did have that. We also, though, had a lot of people who came up to me and who's, who said, look, I don't usually vote for Republicans, but I like what you've done in regard to job training or I like what you've done in regard to mental health and I'm going to vote for you. So, you know, we got a number of those voters who don't agree with me uh, in, in regard to abortion, but there certainly were others who that was a defining issue and they simply would not vote for me because mm. of the fact that they disagreed with me on the issue. Governor, we love that you woke up with us. You took the time to come on the program. We appreciate it. Come back early and often, will you? Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Good to Governor. talk with you. Thank you as well. I noticed he didn't say yes, but he will. Okay. <laughs> he always, it's a good, always a good conversation. Hurricane Nicole hitting Florida overnight, a weaker tropical storm right now, but still dangerous. We're live on the ground. So it's not very, you know, often you get the chance to speak to a Hollywood legend and the View co-host Whoopi Goldberg, but I did sitting down with me for CNN this morning, an interview. She is weighing in on the midterms and how people feel about President Biden. So Tuesday, um, you know, everyone said, well, Joe Biden, he's too old and people, he's his approval rating. What do you what do you believe? Because it, it, it looks to me like he's winning. Well, I think the people, they may not like everything he's done, but they like a lot of what he's done. They like that he's trying to get it done. They see what he's trying to do. That's the beauty of all of this. Hmm. Well, Whoopi has a lot more to say about politics. She has a lot more to say about civility and quitting and... Um, quitting, reason- quitting, not quitting The View, quitting Twitter. Yeah, quitting Twitter. Yeah, quitting Twitter. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I, I need to get that in. Not, She's like, what, quitting what? Just they, trying to save you. Saving me. Whoopi's going to go call me lines. and say, what are you talking about? <laughs> the reason she sat down and did the interview with me is because she has this movie that she has been... Uh, trying to do for over a decade, and it's Till. It's about Emmett Till's, oh, yeah. the, the death of Emmett Till and the, his family's journey and really about his um, mother, Mamie, um, and her journey and how she became, you know, she started fighting for civil rights after her son was murdered in, in Money, Mississippi in 1955. So we get, and yeah. she played a big role in this movie, and, and what did she, she have to say about pro- the... Not only executive produced the movie, she plays... Um, Emma Till's grandmother in the movie as well. And so she talks about that and the issues surrounding race, discrimination. Uh, and But she talks about a whole lot more. You know, there's a reason she's on The View. Tomorrow, you know, She likes it, right? to give her view. We get to yeah. see it tomorrow? We we'll get to see it tomorrow. And she also talked about us coming in to co-host The View, all three of us. Interesting Psych. idea. 
Hey, listen, we're a little punch drunk from, uh, you know, the election and working those long hours overnight. But we're back, and tomorrow we'll have more sleep, and we'll be even we'll better be than we're great today. We'll be greater tomorrow. Thanks for watching. What happens now? Newsroom okay. starts now. That's it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.